Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, the prosecution is not going to get that man today. No, because I'm going to get him. Welcome to this edition of the Hagman Report. Doug Hagman, Joe Hagman, together with something I like to call America's premier father-son investigative reporting team, coming to you live just, what, how many days before Christmas? Less than a week before Christmas, six days before Christmas, and um, another, what, 13 days before the 2018 New Year. It's uh, exciting to think that we're going to have a new year upon us. It's hard to believe. Again, I just marvel at where, where, where this, where's this time gone? Where does it go? <laughs> It's uh, yeah, it does. So uh, you know, yeah. I, I noticed uh, as we see most holiday seasons, yes, that just about everybody in the world of uh, radio is gone. They have guest hosts; they're on vacation. If if anyone's going, it's going to be me. So I asked, just just to let you know, just well, I know I know where you're headed with this. And where's and, uh, our vacations? Uh, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, if anyone's going to take a vacation, we're going to get what? Gets we're, it. We're going to get Christmas off, which is which is fine. Well, you know, it, but seriously, here is the thing: we're not we're we're not we're not of that. No, of, of that course ilk, not. You know, the, but the, don't uh, we pretend fake it till you make it? Yeah, that only works for. Uh, no. All right. Work. Well, that was my my attempt at trying to milk some extra days off here during the holiday season, which apparently is not going to work. So. Let's do what let's do what we do best. <clears throat> All right. Yeah. It, and there's a lot of stuff to get into. The House has got to revote on the tax bill due to a procedural error. Two of the three uh, uh, parts, or two of the three addendums to the, the the monetary end of the tax bill, had to it gets it has to be revoted on back at the at the House after the. I don't mm-hmm. know whether you saw that, but bottom line is that they're not expecting anything major to uh, become of that, which I think is just rather interesting. Uh, I I just uh, you know uh, look I thought the uh, what am I thinking I I thought that the the uh, um, uh, bills the tax bills monetary bills originated in the Senate is that am I, am I is that something am, am I falling victim to poor civics well, yeah, class or you what you mentioned that the other day and we never really resolved that this article from Politico says the House is expected to have. Uh, have to vote again Wednesday on Republican sweeping tax legislation after several provisions were ruled out of order in the Senate. However, it is not likely to stop the momentum for long with the legislation on track to be delivered to the President's desk this week. The Senate is expected to vote on the bill Tuesday night after striking the provisions which related to expanding tax advantage college savings accounts and taxing college endowments. So it says the stumble is an embarrassment for the Republicans. And this happened uh, just hours before celebrating on the House. They should board. know better, I suppose. Uh, but then again, l- look at our tax code, just as an example. Um, but no, it doesn't have to retain the Senate, apparently. Okay. Because they say the House initially passed this uh, tax code, which needed to be rewritten, which then was going to go to the Senate afterwards. Uh, okay, look, don't yell at me, I, I, folks out there. I, look, I, I know pretty much how how bills become law. I, yeah, I've watched that little cartoon of the bill, you know, going up the Capitol steps. Committees and, uh, I get that. I just thought the origin or, or the, the, the process, the, the origin 
would have to go with the committee, a Senate committee, um, if it has to do with monetary issues. But, but, hey, I'll go back to, I'll go back to college and high school and elementary school or whatever. Where do they teach that? I don't know. Apparently not, not any place anymore, right? All right. right, I'm trying to find out here. Just, yeah, um, because it's bothered me. It, it bothers me. And, and, uh, okay, this is what it says. Um, I did a search on where does monetary legislation originate? Yes. It says the origination clause, also known as the revenue clause, reads as follows. All bills for raising revenue shall originate in the House of Representatives, but the Senate may propose or concur with the amendments as on other bills. Okay, which is what we just saw. Okay, all right. Silly me. Well, you learn something. Look, you know what? I, I, I learn stuff, all right? Well, you have to learn if you're not <laughs> if you're not learning what you're you're what are you doing then? You're uh, no, so. right. But one thing I do know is this. Uh, that aside, and my my poor civics knowledge and history and government aside, um, one thing I do know is that the the Mueller investigation, as out of control as it is, big deal about the thirteen devices slash documents. I know you talked about this. I believe it was on your, on your Daily Show today. Uh, 13, uh, or, or, or the, the members of the presidential transition team, which were, which Mueller, okay, here's, here's the thing. Let, let me back up. All presidential transition teams, they are, they're considered pers- uh, non-public figures. They're not considered government employees. Okay. So think about this, folks. So for years, the GSA, the General uh, Services Administration, has acted as the gatekeeper or the holder of their information and such. That doesn't mean they own it. The GSA doesn't own it. The GSA just hangs on to it until such time as the people say, okay, you know, here, um, we'll take it back. That's I know that that's really kind of a lame explanation, but that, that's kind of like the, the nuts and bolts of it. Well, Mueller does not have any authority at the PTT members' devices, documents, or anything because that is private property. Mm-hmm. You follow me? All right. So Mueller, in order to obtain that information, now he's the one that should know law, would have to either get a subpoena or get the get the material directly from the permission. Or yeah, well, or a warrant or a subpoena like okay, you said. Right. Mueller did neither. He asked the GSA for that information. The GSA turned it over. And the, and the, um, we're talking devices, documentation, everything. And turn they turned it over without a warrant or without any permission of the um of the members of the presidential transition team. It's a big deal. This is a big deal. Even I know this now. I might not not I might not know how a law's made, obviously. How a bill goes from a committee to a to a <laughs> law with a little cartoon. I have to watch that cartoon again. But I do know this. So Well on the the website Law and Crime, it just says the special counsel Robert Mueller engaged in a mass seizure of all emails of the Trump transition team without even a warrant or subpoena, and in this author's opinion, a mass seizure as is alleged here against Mueller, 
um, violates Fourth Amendment standards and attorney-client privilege protections. And they cite a Supreme Court case in 2010, um, and I'm not going to go through all the details of what that case is, but uh, as precedent as to how this broke the law. So now, from what I understand, all the all any and all evidence that was could be used or, or was in there in the the uh, documents that Mueller seized are now inadmissible, regardless of what's in there. Well, it's much like in I think it, it's I think this has been mentioned the fruit of the poisonous tree mm-hmm. doctrine, right? Mm-hmm. Has that been mentioned? Yeah, no, I I don't know about it in the article, but yeah, you uh, when you obtain evidence, say you are a police officer. Yeah, and you search someone's car or house. You search someone's house without a warrant, and uh, you know something's hidden away. A gun's hidden away. It's not in plain sight, and you uh, submit that gun into evidence. Well, it turns out after running tests, that gun uh, is linked to three different murders. That evidence is inadmissible in court because the evidence, you, the way you obtain the evidence, was not legal. Therefore, you cannot use it against the person. You know, I just, just kind of an entertaining aside, throwing back a little bit and just laying back a little bit. I remember being involved in a case in the FBI, the state police, both, where they were working hand in hand and I was there and I went in undercover to do something and, and, um, um, there, there were, there were pieces of a computer, there, there were actually computer, um, there were pieces of a computer Equipment. I don't know what you call them. They look like sticks of RAM. I, I suppose you, that that's the best description I can give you. And uh, th- now this is back in nineteen ninety uh, something, late nineties, mid to, mid to late nineties. I remember going in to this business, this is a huge business, going in and and obtaining one of those pieces of equipment and then having it identified forensically, the FBI, giving it to the FBI. The, I was working as an operational asset for the FBI. The FBI took it and they, they validated what it was. All right. Now fast forward a couple of weeks I went out to the business again as an operational asset for the FBI and uh, through a process, and I'm just not going to get into the whole story, but I worked undercover there for a while and through the process of trust I gained someone's trust and I know that a lot of Christians are going to just, or not a lot, a couple of uh, mind-numb, idiotic Christians are going to are going to have an issue with me, you know, uh, operating under undercover, uh, under pretext, under a different name. But I was able to uh, was able to make a controlled purchase for, of one of these devices. Okay, so fine, good. That's from a business. Not enough. Follow me on this. I am getting somewhere. So. The third time I went in, I was wired up by the FBI and uh, went in, talked to the man. I had him on video. I had him on audio. I had him, I mean, I just had this, made a controlled purchase with marked money. You know, it's kind of like the TV show, really cool, right? Yeah, that's not cool at all. But so, so I made a purchase and came back out. So, and, and then went to the the drop spot and got picked up by the FBI and stuff and then went back to the FBI and so what I'd failed to do I left to step out I mentioned I mentioned the, to, to the agent that he had to go out to his vehicle to get this piece of equipment you'd think that I would know better right and tell 
tell them that it was this was this piece of equipment was in the vehicle. Well, at some point between the time the last controlled buy and the execution of the search warrant, um, and how that and I'll just tell you how the execution of the search warrant went. I went in, uh, wired up again. This time, and of course the FBI could hear me and the state police could hear me and they were all coordinated. And so my, my, I can't remember what the statement was. I had to make a statement. And at which time, basically, all I did was made that statement and then duck. Because all hell broke loose. As soon as that happened, all hell broke loose. You, you, you follow me, you know? Because all you hear is, you know, well, you hear a lot of things. And a lot of it's like really not, you hear a lot. You hear FBI, state police get down, you know, and then a lot of cussing, a whole lot of cussing. And here I am, like, you know, wetting myself. Trust me, I'm telling you. But here's the problem. Between the, 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 the last, second to last controlled by and the last controlled by, the guy had moved a large portion 99.9% of the evidence out of the business and into his car. The search warrant that we had didn't include his car. So when they went to look for these devices, and we're talking probably at three quarters of a million to a million dollars worth of these certain devices, they weren't there. And, you know, the agents are looking at me like, well, what do you what do you have to say for yourself? And I said, well, you know, I, I it might be in his car. I'll go check. And the agent, it's like on, on a cartoon, grab me by the grab me by the nape of the neck, you know, the shoulders, pulled me back. He said, Sonny, you blew it. It's over. I said, what do you mean? It, it, the, no, no. Look at this warrant. He pushes the warrant in my face. He said, Does, do you see anywhere where it's this car there? Do you see anywhere where it's this vehicle there? You gotta keep your hands off that vehicle. By this time, the guy that was, the, the guy that was the, the target, um, he was about ready to get in his vehicle and was caught out by his vehicle, uh, by the state police and, uh, arrested. Vehicle. Now, thankfully, what happened was, while he was in custody, they had to go back and get a warrant for the vehicle. But the FBI agent, man, was he peeved. He was peeved about that, saying, you can't touch that. You, what do you think? You know, who do you think you're the... So I just kick back, relax. Did you enjoy that with me? Walk down memory lane? Mm-hmm. <sighs> so anyway. So that brings us to... Uh... Through the prison street. There, I know that from experience. I haven't walked the bill up to Congress, but I have done that. Go ahead. Well, what happens with uh, Robert Mueller and the Mueller investigation? Is this going to be a reason, uh, or is this a fireable offense? Uh, will there be action taken against Mueller uh, for this? Or, as we've heard speculation, will Rosenstein be fired from the FBI? And that seems to uh, be the thoughts of another article from Law and Crime that's up on the Drudge Report, and that's titled, Trump might be able to fire Mueller without actually firing him. And it goes on to talk about a scenario where uh, they would fire Rosenstein and uh, how this would then have some kind of negative effect on Mueller and the, the investigation. I, I want to tell you this. You're talking about that. I was talking to Roger Stone today because I was on InfoWars and got to speak with him a little bit. Okay. And uh, 
whatever's happening out there is not pretty with respect to the special counsel and, and, and Jared Kushner and uh, Donald Trump Jr. Because Kushner and, and um, Jared, Jared Kushner and Donald Trump Jr. were both testified before this uh, House Intelligence Committee's Senate Judiciary Committee as well as the FBI. And of course they're playing one off the other and they're gonna, they're gonna go after probably Kushner, uh, to get to Donald Trump. For what though? I mean, what would they? Well, for some sort of process crime or what I like to call inchoate crime. But a process crime just something like know. lying to the FBI, like they got Flynn <clears throat> on, or something, yeah, something like, that. like that, right? Non-disclosure but, of right. a contact. And, and I asked him because I, I, I was, uh, look, I've got certain, I've got certain intelligence, I've got some intelligence, not a lot, some information, not a lot, I don't know. I mean, where I'm black, blacked out at is the Kushner, um, Trump Jr. section because a lot of that took place behind closed doors. Now I hear what they're saying, that, you know, within the, within the circles, with, by the way, you know, water cooler, but I, I'm not hearing what went on in those, at those committees. And, um, so anyway, the, the bottom line is this. And, and also, you know, they're, they're going after Roger Stone as well. You know that. And he's being sued. Right. And, um, but he's being sued for what? Um, well, okay, that's a little bit different because he's being sued by, sued by three members, three people of the, uh, bank that, where their servers were located in Trump Tower and the, um, and I don't, you know, I, well, I don't want to get into this except to say that he's, he's, in my view, unfairly being targeted, um, given the situation. I think, I think it's, it's, uh, you, you, the suit, look, the suit is public record. I'm not going to get into it. I'm, I'm not going to violate any confidences. I don't know how far he wants me to go except to say that it's, to, to me, this is perhaps the most, um, they're destined to take Donald Trump down. That's well, they're going to try, but I just, I don't see how that can happen. I, they can, um, you know, what, at, how I see this playing out is they're going to continue to move down the line. Kushner, Donald Trump Jr., uh, like you said, with, with some, whatever they can get to stick. But then I, I don't see, um, first of all, I don't believe there was any type of, uh, and we've talked about this many times, any type of the collusion or, um, you know, the, the Russian influence that they're talking about, the connection between Donald Trump and the Russian influence. That's not there. So what, I mean, and, and that's, was supposed to be the scope of the investigation. The special counsel was there to look for collusion between the Trump, Trump and his team. Right. It's, it's out of control. With now. Russia. It's out but of now, control. I mean, they, they went after Paul Manafort for, for stuff that happened, you know, years ago. It had nothing to do with Russia. They went after Flynn for uh, lying to the FBI. And I believe they're going to try to throw an obstruction charge against Trump. And oh, you can count on it. I mean, that's it's not going to stick, though. I don't see it sticking, in, and not in a thousand years. They're oh, going to try. But what if they did this with with a, uh, a largely uh, uh, Democratic House? Well, I, I just Senate. don't. I don't see that happening, though. I don't see the Democrats taking control of of anything this coming election. And I I believe that if the Democrats truly think that the Alabama special election, where Roy Moore lost to Doug Jones is an indication or, or uh, as to where the midterms are going to go, they are uh, making a big mistake in looking at it at, like that. Well, because it, they are not able to yes. win on the battle of ideas, with ideas. They're only, uh, the only thing that they're effective at, at is playing the identity politics and 
trying to gauge or get emotional responses from people through the social justice uh, type mentality, that victim mentality. They can't win any other way. So uh, are they going to run on a platform of new ideas or are they going to continue to run on a platform of against, I'm against Donald Trump? And if they choose to run on that platform of I'm against Donald Trump, I don't think they're going to get the results that they uh, hope for. Look, I, I think this is totally out of control. I think that we're going to see something happen around Christmas time. I don't know whether it's going to be. I mean, I guess now it's Christmas time, right? Maybe after Christmas or right after the New Year. Yeah, I think we're done. I think that we're done till till after the New Year. You know what? You have people in Congress uh, who go home. You have the. Uh, it's the holiday season. You know, half of the people who work in D.C. on a regular basis are not going to be there. So I don't think we're going to see much until the New Year. And then I think uh, we'll, we'll start to see some some things come out, but well, possibly, possibly. But I think something's going to happen rather soon. That's just my belief. But uh, now I had mentioned, and I don't know if I did this on my show or this show, but well, I mentioned. Can you say something happened? What, what, what are they going to uh, create uh, evidence? I mean, what, no, what no. I, I think look, you, you, you've got you've got information from you, you put you put, um, uh, you put Donald Jr. Donald Trump Jr in a room, or you put uh, Jared Kushner in a room, for how many hours? He's bound to say something. I don't care who you are. You're, you're bound to say something that's going to be inconsistent with something you did or something you said earlier. And they could they could twist that and turn that. Okay. Uh, that's just my view. And then they could use that as a stepping stone to Donald Trump. So I think that right now they're at the level now where they're going to use whatever they can to... Uh, but that's a stepping week. stone. A week, or, I mean, what do they need? Uh, uh, they got nothing Special counsel for, for six, eight months with absolutely no evidence, grasping at straws, trying to, you know, uh, prolong this. We've seen IS inside the Mueller investigation to the conspiracy against Donald Trump from the agent Strauch who conducted the Hillary Clinton interviews. And, and now, now it, it's Aaron Zebley, by the way, I, I said, I, if you listen to my morning show, I said, listen for Eric, or Aaron Zelby, and here it is. Now it comes out where he's um, uh, uh, the uh, right under Mueller is uh, defendant Hillary Clinton's IT guy, yeah. Justin Cooper. Okay, and his wife, by the way, is a, a judge on the Eastern, uh, for the Washington <laughs> Circuit Court. So you right. see all this conflict of interest, the bias, and if they roll something out really weak, something procedural, uh, like they did with Flynn, you know, uh, you wouldn't have been in trouble if we didn't have this investigation because the only thing you're getting in trouble for is, um, you know, mis misstatements to the FBI. It's it's nonsense, and I I, I hope uh, if that's what comes out of this, that Trump issues pardons. He should pardon General Flynn because the investigation should have never taken place. It was set up from the beginning. Uh, because the Clinton the doors and DNC, they're the ones who are guilty of all these things, the collusion with Russia, the money laundering, the thefts, the election fraud, all this stuff. And now they're, you know, this is what they wanted to do just in case Trump won. Is the insurance policy was to try to make the election uh, illegitimate and, and try to uh, say Trump's presidency is, uh, it's not moral, it's not right, and it's not going to stand. But they are failing at that. And as the economy continues to get stronger and Trump continues to get things done, uh, the tax bill being, being, you know, the most front and center now, but everything from the uh, Supreme Court nominations to uh, just everything he's been able to accomplish in spite of all the people who are against him, the American people are not going to 
they're not going to put up with Mueller, you know, nitpicking and trying to uh, throw charges at people just for the sake of looking like he's he's doing something. So what are they going to do? My, my question to you is: Mueller comes out with some trumped up charge. Fire Mueller. Okay. Pardon and, and Flynn then what and anybody happens? else? Then what happens? Well, then they want to complain like they always have been since he's been on the scene. And they're going to want to complain. You don't see. You don't see. You, you don't see cities. You don't see no. a, a, a civil war of any kind for any under any reason at this moment. I mean, you may get some protests, but uh, you know that's you, no. You don't, you don't, you don't see uh, the dissolution of the FBI. To, to when I say dissolution, I'm talking about uh, chaos. I, 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 didn't, I don't mean dissolution. Chaos at the highest levels of the FBI, Department of Justice. You don't see mass. mass yeah, that, and it, that's problems. already there. I mean, that, that's definitely already there. When we look at. Uh, how the FBI and the DOJ are, are appearing to be so corrupt, and it is only those top 1% of people in power there. You have the majority of the FBI across the country, I'm, I'm sure, are excellent people doing the right thing each and every day. It's just these people at the very top who have these, um, you know, pol- it's the D.C., it, it's the, the swamp D.C. culture that is corrupt. I agree, but and, but if they can't if they can't take him down legally, they're going to kill him. That's my view. Because, well, that's 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 possible, but I don't see them being able to legally take Donald Trump down. Not even close. Not at this point. I just don't see it. Well, I could be wrong, but uh, I, uh, they'll manufacture evidence if they have to. I, I I I that's just my belief. Or when I say manufacture evidence, look at all they've not done with Hillary Clinton. Yeah, the Awans. That's what the, the argument was made on uh, the guest host of Hannity today, that you know they're, they're bending over backwards to try to make Trump appear guilty of something, anything that they can uh, stick to him. At the same time, they're bending over backwards to cover up any crimes or prosecution of Hillary Clinton. And it's that, that uh, hypocritical double standard that we see so often, and it's a shame. But we will um, continue to monitor the news and... and It'll be interesting to see. Uh, you're not going to get a lot of, you know, the regular uh, in-depth political analysis during these holiday season, uh, this holiday Except season. Except us. Except us. Yeah, we'll be here. The only day we're not going to be here is on Christmas Day, which is next Monday. But it'll be interesting to see what happens. I think that each day goes by, the American people who are paying attention, if they have not already, are really starting to question, question the intentions of Mueller and the direction of this investigation, especially with all the credibility issues that have been raised just this week alone. We're going to be right back after this break. Don't go anywhere. edition of the Hagman Report. We're going to be joined by Joe Prim here in just a few moments, and we're going to talk about um, his story and his company in this uh, this segment. Just a few quick headlines while we are waiting to get him on. Um, how many people are aware that Gallup poll has been conducting a, uh, a poll on Hillary Clinton's favorability rating since 1992? They started doing this. I said that to say this headline here. 
Hillary Clinton favorability rating at the lowest it has ever been at 36 percent. Uh, has her, her image has declined since June, and it now is the worst Gallup has measured for her to date since they started in 1992. So I, I just find it interesting that uh, as much as they have trouted her out in the media, you know, with her book, what happened, and uh, you know the the election coverage that the extended election coverage that the American people continue to uh, more and more dislike her. I find that that very interesting. Also, uh, we, we mentioned the, the tax bill. There's a great article up on the Gateway Pundit by Jim Hoff. Never forget, Democrats cast 616th vote against tax cuts for working class families. And what this article does is document the history of uh, the last few times that we had tax issues that were voted on in the House. And it says that uh, from the Obamacare Legislation that was introduced in 200 and in 200 in 2010, um, until today, you had the Republicans who had voted for working class uh, families tax cuts. Uh, 227. This was the latest uh, vote. 227 Republicans to zero Democrats. So you tally up the last few votes that you had in the House and the Senate, and what you get is the Democrats had cast zero votes for tax cuts for the working class Americans. And 666 no votes across the board, House and Senate, since 2010. Zero votes when a tax bill came up. find that very interesting. You can go to the Gateway Pundit, and Jim Hoft has that article there uh, detailed. We have our guest with us, and this guest is Joe Prim. He has a podcast that you can find on his website, VigilantWolf.com. VigilantWolf.com. And we have not spoken with Joe off air, but let's just bring him on and he can introduce himself to us and his audience. Mr. Prim, welcome to the Hagman Report. Hey, thanks for having me. First things first, let me say I'm a real big fan of what you guys are doing. You guys are sticking your necks out there and truly serving a bigger purpose than yourselves. Your show and your guests have made many a long commute bearable, and there's absolutely no value I can place on the education that you guys provide on a nightly basis. Wow. Well, well, thanks for that. Uh, your check's in the mail now for that. Uh, <laughs> uh, no, it, it's great. Thank you so very much. Uh, and back at you because you've got, you're doing some really great things as well. Why don't you tell us in the audience a little bit about yourself, what you do, how people can get, uh, download your podcast, the whole nine yards. Go ahead and, and uh, start there. Well, I'll start out with just a little bit on myself, and then we'll I'll jump into what I kind of wanted to talk about, if that's all right. Sure. Yeah. Yeah, let's do that. Yeah. I grew up in a Christian home with very great parents. My parents made their decisions by bringing them before the Lord. And I can remember even at a young age hearing my dad talk to my mom about God's direction for our family. And as you can imagine, relying on God's direction rather than their own led to a very interesting childhood. We moved a lot. We were homeschooled way before it was trendy. We ate health foods long before people realized how unhealthy they were eating. My parents adopted my brother and sister and pretty much didn't give a care what anybody else thought about it. But as you look back, you see what God was doing, like a master chess player moving his pieces into position. At some point, we started attending a church that was involved with an organization in Guatemala, and they had a short-term mission trip coming up. 
growing up in the church, you always felt it was your obligation to do a short-term mission trip, sort of a Christian rite of passage. I somewhat reluctantly agreed to go along, and my father and sister were going too, so I didn't really have that much of an option. But the trip went smoothly, you know, long hikes up into the beautiful mountains of Guatemala, and everything went as planned until the final night of the trip. And as I think all short-term mission trips do, we celebrated on the last night with testimonies and a big dinner. And at the end of the dinner, the director asked, how would you feel about coming back to Guatemala to serve again? I think everyone stood up but me. I was content. I had done my part. I felt absolutely no need to return. Later that night, as I was packing my suitcase, my dad approached and asked me the question that would pretty much change my life forever. And he asked, what would you think about moving down here? Maybe I shouldn't have been surprised, but I was. And I honestly remember thinking, maybe he'll just forget. But he didn't. And in less than a year, my parents had raised their financial support, and we were on our way down to Guatemala where my parents are actually still serving now. After around six months, I drove back to the U.S. and thought I was ready to get on with my own life. I thought it was, but God had a different plan. And after a short time back in the U.S., God started pushing me to return to Guatemala to help my parents. And I fought him on this stubbornly, refusing to accept this answer as I continued to pray for guidance. Finally, God gave me an ultimatum. Either I could continue as I was or return to Guatemala as he wanted and that I would be blessed for doing so. So I went back, and now I can look back at those years from 18 years old to 20 and and see that they really made me the man that I am today. And let me be clear. If I had not listened, if I had not obeyed what God, the direction that God was giving me all those years ago, I would not be who I am. I saw what the world is really like down there, not the bubble we live in here in this country. I saw things that were difficult. I learned empathy and learned to take responsibility and to make sacrifice. I could go on and on, but we'll jump forward about 20 years here to to this past summer. About two years earlier, my family... And I had moved out of the suburbs and into rural America to a, to a small homestead, much better suited for us for raising our kids. For me, there's kind of really nothing as beautiful as seeing my kids all sweaty and dirty from a long day of playing out in the creek with their dogs. But as much as I loved our new home, it really left me with a long commute, two hours plus to work in the morning, three hours to come home every day. The commute left me with a very little time with my family, but a lot of time to pray and a lot of time to think and listen to audiobooks and podcasts. I began to increasingly feel a burden for Christian men, so many of whom seemed lost and unable to find their bearings, unsure of their roles in our changing world. And about that time, I had just finished up episode 19 of my podcast, which was titled, What's Your Life Built On? And in the podcast, I talked about faith and family and freedom were my foundation. But was I really living that out? And God began to convict me that I wasn't living out what was important to me. And I continue, and continued to really give me a burden for Christian men. As I prayed for guidance and seeking God's direction, the project I was on began to slow down. And I felt God motioning that the door was opening and that it was time to move on. 
that it was time to trust him and live out my priorities, and it was time to start something new. I approached my boss explaining that if people were going to get laid off, that I would volunteer, and they very reluctantly granted me my freedom. Since that day, a lot has changed. I started a small business building Tidex holsters, have been collaborating with my wife on a men's product grooming line. I enjoyed spending some time this late fall with my brother, who I hadn't spent any time with in six years. We built a, a hoop house on our property, and I got to listen to him so that I could better understand a veteran's mentality and what the veterans went to, because he had served in both Iraq and Afghanistan in the 82nd Airborne, and I learned a lot from him. I've been able to get more involved in my church, serving with the new church security team, and my podcast, Ever Vigilant, has a new and true direction. Wow. That's a that's an awesome story. And, you know, uh, like so many testimonies I hear, and, and myself included, um, it, it's amazing how the Lord works in our in our lives and, and the choices we make uh and how, how faith plays such a huge role and sometimes when you're in situations that seem so bad, how they ended up, uh, you know, working out for the best when you look back on it. And, uh, I have, you know, my own stories, you know, where I'm sitting in a situation thinking, oh man, this is terrible. You know, I screwed up so bad, but looking back on it now, having, knowing I had to go through that in order to get where I am today. And, um, you know, looking at your website here, I saw, uh, I want to ask you this right now, where on, uh, the website, can we sign up for your podcast? Is that down at the bottom there? Um, you can either do it. I think I have a link on there because you can sign up for it and on it's on iTunes and it's on Spreaker, pretty much any podcast aggregator you can find it. Okay, because I do. Uh, I did find the the Spreaker link, but um, I'll, I'll find the the, I, the iTunes and other links. And folks, his website is vigilantwolf.com. That's vigilantwolf.com. And I like at the, the bottom, you have the mission statement, and it's family, faith, and freedom. And you even have uh, scriptural verses in there. And let me ask you this. So how was the, the transition to start uh, working with, uh, spending more time with your family and, and being able to work with your wife? What has that done for for you uh, in your life personally? Uh, it's It's been great, you know, Spending time with those that are important to you is, you know, it's it's what I wanted, what I really desired, the direction that I really wanted to go in was to be able to spend the time with them. That was part of the reason why we moved out where we moved was that we could spend time as a family planting trees and raising animals and doing that sort of thing. So it's it's been it's been great actually. My to, to be able to spend that much time with my wife, where in the past when I was you know, take, making a long commute, you know, I was lucky if I got to spend, you know, 10, 20 minutes a night with my wife and, you know, several hours with my kids. And it's it's just not enough. That's that's not the way that God intended us to live. Yeah. So you make these uh, these products, um, accessories yeah. for, for firearms and um, yeah, we we got to talk. I mean, t- tell me what you got. This is pretty cool. And then the beard, the beard balm. This that really caught my attention. And then seeing you on here, I see uh, you you use this yourself too, huh? Yeah, you got to put it to good use. Interesting. What what uh, was it? Did you have the beard 
and you wanted a, a product that that worked for you, or what? What? What's the story well, behind the beard oil? Well, that's part of it. That's part of just wanting to have these products to be able to use on myself. I've for the last few years been growing out the winter beard, and every year I kind of threaten to keep it all all year round. So we'll see. It's kind of a running joke between me and my wife of how how long the how long uh, she'll tolerate the beard. <laughs> okay. Interesting. That's, that's, that's pretty cool. So, so uh, but from your from your um, uh, your business statement to your business itself, I mean, this is a, a, a tremendous success story, uh, and it's an amazing success story, where God basically you were obedient, and from that obedience, this grew. I, I guess that's kind of a summary of of what. Yeah. Would you say? I mean. I definitely agree with you on that, Doug. But I think so many people think that if they follow God's lead on something, if they follow his direction, even though it doesn't make sense to them at the time, so many people are afraid that they're, God's going to send them to do something that they hate, right? Like the old joke always has been, well, God's going to send me to Africa if I really follow what he wants me to do. <laughs> exactly. God will, God will not send you to do something that you hate. You might in the beginning not think that it's going to be what you want to do, but in the end, he made you to fill a certain role in a certain position. And when you fill in that role, when you find that cog where God wants you, it, it'll be always a match made in heaven. I agree with that. I, I've seen it. I've seen it happen in, in my life, and I've I've seen it happen in others around me. And, but you have to be open to that. And the um, uh, I saw a statement today. I think it was on Twitter. Uh, you you profess to believe in God, but do you believe God? And um, that kind of made it started me thinking. You know, exactly. we've got. Everybody uh, thinks their own ways the their yeah. own ways the right way and the best way, and uh, yeah, <laughs> you learn the hard way with that mentality. That's for sure. Exactly. Yeah. Hey, to, uh, you know what I want to talk to a little bit more about the the war on men too and boys right now. Oh, sure. and that's one thing John and I spoke about earlier. We, we, we could spend a day on this, an entire yes. day, and and far away, sir. Um. Let's start out. The real mission statement for Ever Vigilant is to encourage and challenge men to prepare, defend, and lead at home and in their communities. And the war on men and boys has become even more obvious, I think, in the recent days, with the more Hollywood types and politicians being exposed every day for the predatory monsters that they are. We as men, for some reason, are getting the brunt of the blame. We, the moral, upright, God-fearing, are lumped in with this trash. And lumping all men in with this trash is just plain ignorant. So let's make sure we see it for what it is. It's just one of many tactics being used to take us out and disable men from being able to carry out the role that God created for it. In this era of ease and comfort, too many men are taking the easy route. They're peter-padding it, I like to call it. They're refusing to grow up rather than face the responsibility of God's role for men. We're not never, never land, and the result of this dereliction of duty really is all around us. There's also a clearly a war on women and femininity, and the goals are the same on both of these fronts. 
a weaker family, a weaker church, and a, a weaker community. Yeah, you know, um, to the war on men real quick, because this is something that, that, that bugs me. We see that the society as a whole really, uh, for the most part, at least what we see out of the entertainment industry and uh, the, the places with influence in our society, we see that, you know, the, the masculinity is under attack and they're, they're trying to portray it as, as a bad thing, you know, the toxic masculinity. And then, you know, adding to that a little bit is the racial component where we've seen, uh, the words white privilege, you know, be thrown around. Um, you know, that really applies to, to men more than women, at least in the examples I've seen. Uh, but, you know, this is what I don't get. Why the, obviously, as you said, and correctly said, the goal is to destroy the family. And this has been a goal of these people for so long now. How is this uh, war on men, war on masculinity, adding to destroying the family? Oh, lots and lots of ways. I mean, just simple things. Because, I, I mean... Well, for me personally, if somebody, you know, is attacking my masculinity or whatever, I, I could care less what they think, well, what they say. But, it's not going to change my behaviors. It's not going to change well, what I, you know what I mean? But, but right. But, so but, I guess how how do you measure the effects of that, and how is it affecting? Well, I'll let you answer that question. I was going to pipe in with something different, but go ahead. If you if you have an, if you have a response to that, Sean. Uh, yeah, I really think that it's a lot of subtle little ways, and I think that probably young boys are probably taking the brunt of this and a lot of it from a, a good parent's viewpoint is probably unintentional like in my notes here I have you know God created men with a desire to be to be brave one of the less obvious ways that boys are being hurt is by taking away from competition or the way that boys can measure themselves by awarding trophies to all that participate by not allowing boys to to lose to climb trees to build fires and shoot slingshots or build bike ramps these remove ways that a boy can measure himself and give himself value so there's just one little example amen to all that thank you let boys be boys give them a you know i remember growing up i had a, a, a bb gun rifle and uh you know, the other thing my, my folks said would, it, just be careful, don't knock someone's eye out with that, alright? You know, uh, lap belts, not, not these nuclear, uh, by the way, what's up with these, um, uh, child seats and cars now? Uh, you know, uh, what the hell? We're not sending these kids to the moon, but that's another story. Okay. But, you know, the wagons, the, the bike, as you said, the bike ramps, the, there's this big, I never wore a helmet when I was riding a bike when I was, five, six years old, which explains a lot, I know. But, hey, you know, my goodness. But it all starts at that adolescent area, doesn't it? Or, or that time of adolescence. And, and then the young, I believe the young kids are emasculated at that age. Right. Well, even things like, like boys need sport and competition, but organized sports remove a lot of the organizing because it's done by parents for fairness. And this limits creative thinking, creativity, empathy, negotiating, along with other life skills. What used to happen when I was a kid and I wanted to race somebody on foot or on bike, if you knew from past experience that you were faster, you'd give them a head start. And we would do this with anything that we did, whether we were playing basketball and you'd let the younger kids, you know, move up the free throw line or get shots off. We would do the same thing with, with, um, 
when we play baseball, you'd lob the pitch in for some of the kids, and for other kids, you wouldn't because they were better better hitters. But that's how God created boys to interact, to negotiate and work together. And we're taking away a lot of these opportunities for our boys by handicapping their abilities to learn empathy and bonding on their own. That's that's true. Very true. Now, I'm going to say something, and you can work off this, and then I'm going to kick it to Joe. But here's what I believe. I believe in my spirit, the guy today, if you're a guy, you should be the head of the household. You should be taking care of the bills. You should, unless you've got something worked out with your wife, but 99% of the time, you should be taking care of the bills or making sure at least that the bills are paid. You should be taking care of, you should be out there working. Your wife should be home. You should not make her work. She should not have to work. If you're a real man, the wife should not have to work. You would be taking care of business. If you need to get two jobs and get two jobs and stop spending. Okay. But you should be taking care of business. And we are not portrayed. The guys are not, should not be portrayed like the, like the idiots on television, like King of Queens, you know, the, the fat guy that, uh, has got an IQ of a, of a, a, you know, bowling ball or, or other, what other shows are on, you know, but, but all of this is just, nuclear family, I believe, and when the guys are not taking care of, the, not us guys are not taking care of business, and we should treat our wives like the princesses they are. We should put them on the, on the pedestal. We should make sure they're they're taking a well well taken care of. But as as young men and as boys, we've lost that. We've been, I mean, that's been that's been it's been redefined by these idiot psychiatrists and psychologists. And yeah, I think ultimately the churches in many ways failed men. Fewer than 10% of U.S. churches are able to maintain or establish any sort of men's ministry, and far too many good godly men are no longer even attending church, in part because it's become so feminized. From the decor to the romantic worship songs we sing, all the way to the feminization of really of Jesus himself. The church seems to have forgotten that Jesus was a rebel and a rabble rouser who wouldn't back down. Whether it was Satan in the wilderness or the Pharisees condemning him, for working on the Sabbath, he put them in their place, and they despised him for it. He stormed into that temple. He actually crafted that whip himself. Remember when he called that child to him in Matthew 18? And this is what he said. Truly I tell you, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever takes the lowly position of this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me. And then he completely turns totally William Wallace on us. He totally turns into Braveheart. And this is what he says. But if any one of these little ones, those who believe in me, causes them to stumble, it would be better for them to have a large millstone hung around their neck and be drowned in the depths of the sea. (laughs) Jesus wasn't Mr. Nice Guy. He was a real man, like Doug is describing. And it adds insult to injury that the overlooked men's ministries consist of a circle of chairs in a church basement. And while men can learn and study the scriptures in the basement or the latest or greatest men's seminar, they will not bond and they will not form a brotherhood in that environment. The men form bonds by doing activities together, not by sitting around sharing their feelings. A true brotherhood takes time to form and needs a greater purpose. God created us as men to form packs and groups for working, 
hunting and warring alongside one another. And the frustration here for me, especially, is that Christian men have a bigger purpose. We have a higher calling. And we even call one another brother, but there's no brotherhood there. The church, be, the, the church should really, too, also be filled with veterans. They should be filling our churches because it should be the one place where brotherhood abounds. They should enter our churches and recognize the camaraderie and the brotherhood. But it's not there. And the sad state is in our culture and the mandate and the bromance jokes and the fear really of, of real men being labeled as gay has just helped Satan's goal of separating men. And Thank you. The separate men are just sitting ducks. They're just waiting for Satan's wiles. The whole lone wolf myth, it's just that. It's a myth. And in reality, a lone wolf is a dead wolf. But there's only one way that we can fix the lack of brotherhood in our in your life or in your church. And that falls on you. And that's why one of the things I really try to push in my podcast, I like to call it, you got to pack up. We gotta be intentional about forming packs, like wolves. Men must hold one another to a standard, but also ferociously defend one another's flanks. And I was praying one evening, kind of seeking direction on the podcast, and and this burden that God's laid on my heart for for Christian men. And He brought to mind the poem by Rudyard Kipling, "The Law of the Jungle," and the specific line in that poem that forged a new direction of ever vigilant. And that was, the strength of the wolf is the pack, and the strength of the pack is the wolf. And that's God's intent, is that we battle alongside one another, encouraging and challenging one another in our daily pursuit of Christ. Amen. But it won't happen on its own. Joe, Joe we, we got to stop you there. Brother, you've been, you've been right on the mark, and I want to tell everyone to go to VigilantWolf.com and uh, check out their selection, your selection of uh, holsters and gear and such. And subscribe to the podcast. Uh, yes. Joe, we'll have to have yes. you back. Yeah, please yes, come. Thanks, guys. I really appreciate it. You will come back then, right? Oh, of course. All right. All right. We Thank are you. up against our break. We'll be right back after these short messages. Don't go anywhere. Welcome to this edition of the Hagman Report. You know, one of the issues or one of the events in American history that we still talk about is Oklahoma City, the Oklahoma City bombing. Now, granted, we don't even have we don't have the truth from Las Vegas. We don't have the truth from 9/11. We certainly don't have the truth. I, I don't believe from Oklahoma City. Now, just to be clear. And out of 100% transparency, I had worked with Jana Davis and attorney David Shippers, and Shippers was the guy who uh, was the head lead counsel for the impeachment of of uh, Bill Clinton. And we, we looked into Oklahoma City, and she wrote a book called The Third Terrorist. Now, that's just introducing me. And that was back in the early 2000s. And then Joe and I took a trip to Boston where we looked the third terrorist, uh, the Hussein al-Husseini, in the eyeballs, and his associates in the eyeballs, and saw that there was no souls there. Now I'm hearing, wait a minute. It's not the whole story. So there's a gentleman by the name of uh, 
Cody Snodgrass. He's with us. He's a, he was former, well, I'm gonna let him, I think we're gonna, we're gonna let him give his background. I've got, I've got three pages of background on him. But to, to make this a little bit better, I think, I'm gonna let him tell us who he is and the information that he's got with respect to Oklahoma City. Cody, welcome to the program. Oh, it's great to be here and hi to everybody out there. Uh, we appreciate this opportunity. Um, before we get started, I always make a disclaimer, uh, 1982 Intelligence Identities Protection Act, the IIPA, uh, U.S. Code Title 50, Sections 421 426. It states the disclosure of U.S. government operatives' identity is illegal only if it's done in- intentionally and with knowledge that the government is still actively maintaining a cover for such operative. And we do this uh, because of the case you probably remember in, in January 2013, CIA case officer John Kiriakou was sent to 30 months in federal prison for inadvertently uh, letting out an operative's right. name when he yeah. was discussing the CIA's RDI program, the Redition, Rendition Detention Interrogation Program at Gitmo. So we always right. just we, do that as a disclaimer. And to our end of that, I'll just say what he said. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Uh, ditto what he said. Listen, right. we, 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 we adhere to the same disclaimer. Right. All right. All right. Cool. And thank you for doing that. Yeah, because we don't, yourself. all we want to do, you know, we talk about some of the people, some of them are dead and, and the ones that are still uh, around or, uh, you know, we, we don't use their names. So we just do the best we can. And, and that's all we can do. And, you know, we're in this to get, to get to the bottom of things. And from an investigative standpoint, our investigative standpoint, this is all we want to do is get to the bottom of things. We don't want to, we don't want to get, uh, we don't want people peeing on our legs and tell us, you know, it's raining outside. <laughs> okay, I'm telling you, man, and, I, and I'm, I'm damn pissed off, and I'm sorry if, if I'm allowed to say that, right? That's not, that's FCC compliant. Um, I, I am angry at the fact that we are not getting the truth on anything. That we can't trust the government on anything. And we've been lied to for years, upon years, upon years. Look, we are adults in this country. Tell us the truth. And, and let's find the truth. And, and you're one of the truth tellers I hear out there, and I've been hearing so many, so many marvelous, I mean, you've been, you've been just making your, your claims. Now, uh, look, I, I'm kind of biased on this subject. When I say biased, that doesn't mean good or bad. It, it just means that I've, I've got a lot of information that I think I know that I could be proven wrong on. So, um, but anyway, getting back to the point, uh, why don't you introduce yourself to the to the uh, audience as well, your background a little bit, and then let's get right into the subject. Yeah, uh, we got an hour right now, so I'm going to skip a, a whole lot of stuff about the background. But uh, in 1974, um, I graduated uh, from high school and scored in the top of 1% in the SAT test in physics in the whole nation, and uh, I was the number one on the tennis team. I got a full scholarship. Um, CIA came to recruit me later. Um, in 1975, but I had already been doing uh, black ops before I even talked to them uh, with some Vietnam veterans that came back uh, from the war, and they also worked for CIA over, overseas. So anyway, you fast forward uh, through the time, I got a, I graduated a double bachelor of science degree in mathematics and physics, and then I went into uh, graduate school and to work on my master of science in physics. And after graduate school, I worked for Chevron. 
around geosciences, and we're fast-forwarding in 1980. I was a petroleum and research geophysicist at Amoco Production Company in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Now, that was in 80, 81, and in 82 through 85, um, they began the uh, uh, covert operations over in Arkansas, and Tulsa was real close to that, and I was involved in one of the ops. It's called Centaur Rose, the CIA op, and that came when, um, you know, President Reagan... Uh, he went around Congress. They had passed the Boland Amendment, um, you know, back in 84, February of 84. And that was to um, regulate our troops and no troops down in the regional conflict in Nicaragua with uh, Daniel Ortega, who was the president of the Sandinistas, uh, the communist backed, and then we were uh, back in the Congress. So we were right in the middle of all that, those ops, uh, he ordered CI director to, uh, to, to aid him without Congress's knowledge. So they moved the weapons down there and then, uh, paid for the operation with, uh, the drug money and stuff. So we were in the middle of all that when Bill and Hillary Clinton were there. And, uh, that's, uh, a lot, a big subject. So anyway, fast forward into 1991 and I was, uh, I died in a, in another operation. It's, uh, Project Slammer, it was called. Um, it was, uh, well, I died twice in that operation. They shocked me back, and uh, I made it back. And by that time, after all this time, I was uh, ineffective. I'd been hurt and had broken ribs and a lot of nerve damage and different things during all these ops. And uh, anyway, in uh, 94, in October, I was approached by another operative. His name is Harold Leonard. I can use his name. He's dead now. And Harold Leonard, uh, we went out to a, a rural area under the trees, and uh, he had a, a backpack with half a million in cash in it. And he said, we've got a job for you. And I said, which country are we going to? You know, I thought it was Saudi Arabia or something. We'd had uh, job offers over there with the royal family guarding their, their kids and stuff. And um, I, I said, "Where?" he said, no, it's here. And I said, well, what kind of building is uh, What kind of job is it? He said, it's an EOD job, explosive demolitions. I said, okay, what's the target? And he said, it's a, a, a domestic building. Uh, it's a federal building. And I said, what? And he said, yeah, it's a federal building. This was October 94. So anyway, uh, I went off on him, and I said, which, which building is it? He said, it's the Alfred P. Murray Federal Building in Oklahoma City. And uh, I, I was at the end of my career anyway, and I knew it was a patchy job right off the bat especially for such a low amount of money. And, uh, what's, what's that? What's an Apache job? Um, Apache job. Apache job is one like McVeigh took. You know, it's it's where you're... Oh, Apache? Yeah, Patsy. yeah. Okay. I'm talking too fast. I'm sorry. But anyway, he said half a million now and half a million job, job is done and so forth. So I said, no, I'm, I'm sick of this stuff. I'm having uh, bad dreams at night. I had severe PTSD. I was drinking heavily. Uh, to cover my PTSD. I had a lot of broken ribs and injuries and stuff. And I said, I can't take this anymore, and I'm, I'm not doing it. And that's the point at which I turn from CI asset to a liability. So you fast forward through through time, and, and I'll get to the end of this real quick because we only got an hour. But um, when the building went off later in April 19th of 1995, um, I went down between Tulsa and Oklahoma City to some old safe houses that we had used during the CIA operations uh, over in Arkansas uh, way back in the 80s. 
Ray Nichols had been indicted and arrested. And um, so you fast forward through that to 1997, and I was in Colorado Springs, Colorado, with uh, uh, there was an ATF DEA undercover operation called Operation Stingray. It was a code name. And in that operation, I met uh, ATF agent Blake L. Butler. He would later get the nation's top cop award from Vice President Al Gore and uh, United States Attorney General Janet Reno at a D.C. dinner party. And I found out later that Blake Butler had been uh, at the Waco Branch Davidian compound when it uh, when they had the gunfight back on February 28th of 93. And he was also at the Ruby Ridge Randy Weaver standoff where Vicki Weaver had been shot. And then he was also supposed to be working at the Murrah building on the day it was bomb, but he magically didn't call in. So I had been in this operation with him for two years, and to make a long story short, back on April 20th of 99, this is two years into that op, um, they had the Columbine High School shooting, and that was in Littleton, Colorado up here, and it was the biggest high school shooting in uh, U.S. history. is a big deal. And so on April 22nd, I met Agent Butler at the ATF undercover residence in the Springs, and um, there was Bill Clinton and Janet Reno all, all over the TV. You know, had their little photo op uh, for the gun thing. And so he, we started talking, and he, he asked me about that. And I, knew, I had some people for the Defense Intelligence Agency I worked with, Captain Glenn Wilson from Vietnam. He uh, he was with Janet Reno, was head of no-knock narcotics down in Dade County, Florida, when she was uh, the DA down there before Clinton bumped her up to the White House. So anyway... Um, they were on TV, and we started talking. And I didn't know we were on four millimeter hidden cameras. And so I started blabbing my mouth about all these old CIA ops in Arkansas with Bill Clinton and Hillary and the PD file rings and the drugs and the arms and the Rose Law Firm and the whole thing. And um, and then I also told him the job of how the CIA had offered me the job to bomb the Murrah building for a million dollars. And he started fidgeting around because I didn't know at the time, but he had been at the Murrah building. Uh, supposed to be there that day. And anyway, um, so they planted me with fake evidence, okay, and <clears throat> then arrested me on October 7th, 99. And the CIA came from D.C., and uh, they asked me direct questions about Bill Clinton. And then they turned me over to the FBI, the ATF, the DEA, and the IRS. Well, they put me in front of Judge Edward Nottingham, and he had been um, nominated to his judgeship in the Tenth Circuit Federal Court up here in Denver uh, by none other than um, ex-director of Central Intelligence, George Bush Sr. And then the prosecutor on the case was none other than Tom Strickland. He was directly appointed by Bill Clinton to be the United States Attorney in the Tenth Circuit. So the fix was in. Talk about and a pucker they, factor there. I don't, I don't mean to interrupt, but you got, you got at that point, you got to know. Holy crap! I mean, oh yeah, I, it, it gets it gets deeper. I'm giving you the short version. Tom Strickland had been at a Denver law firm with uh, Brownstein, Hyatt, Faber, and Strickland. Now Norman Brownstein was the principal partner of this law firm. Later, we found out that Norman Brownstein was in the CIA's Council of Six Attorneys. In the 1970s, when George Bush Sr. was director of Central Intelligence. So the fix was in here in the court. That's why they brought McVeigh up here, so they could rig the trial. And we have, in this book, it's 700 pages. It has, uh, it has tremendous amounts of documentation. We've got 20,000 pages. 
licensed top cop asking me if I ever worked for the CI and stuff. I, I tape recorded all of them. Uh, this stuff's never been out in public. The stuff about Waco and all this, a lot of this stuff, no one's ever heard these stories. But um, it's an amazing story. So the short short version is they threw me three cells down from Timothy McVeigh. I had a perfect record, uh, no traffic tickets, no drugs, no violence, and they planted me with evidence, okay? And then they put another guy in there named Terry James Gagan, and he took a van load of C4 plastic explosives from his CI handlers in Denver down to Trinidad. Building went up. And his contacts were three Middle Eastern men, and he eyewitnessed plans to the Murrah building in English with them. He got spooked. He went back up to the Secret Service office in Denver and told him, hey, uh, there's something weird. I think I'm going to be a patsy. I don't know what's going on. I did my job, and I don't like these Middle Eastern guys or something weird. And uh, so anyway, CIA got wind of it. They planted his house with evidence, and the FBI arrested him. So they had me and Kerry James Gagan and Nichols and McVeigh all up there, the people that were the principals of the patsy operation. And we'll talk about the real operation here later. So anyway, make a long story short, uh, after all this, they they had me there. Uh, you know, they stripped out my bed. I was sleeping on, on concrete. All I had was a pair of skivvies. Uh, I didn't eat for days. I thought the CIA was going to poison me to kill me. Um, and then I was there the day they took McVeigh out. And uh, then later he was executed at the Terre Haute FCI, the Federal Correctional Institute, Terre Haute. Indiana on June 11th, 2001. And I know some people that sat on the front row and watched that execution and so forth, so we can talk about that later. But anyway, uh, Kerry James Gagan was sitting, uh, told by Judge Nottingham pre-trial to go to the Springfield, Missouri FCI, the Federal Correctional Institute there. They have a medical facility and a mental facility. And that's what a favorite thing. See, Judge Nottingham was a CIA judge. He was nominated by CIA director Every case that went to him in the Tenth Circuit was steered. They used something called the Promise Software in the DOJ, the Justice Department, and it correlated all the cases. Anyone that had CIA or NSA um, contacts, national security cases, were all steered steered to him, and he made sure they never saw the light of day. His favorite trick was to send the inmates for a mental evaluation pre-trial, make sure they're fit to stand trial, of course, and then they'd give them the juice, put them in straight jackets, and scramble their minds. So they could never talk about the CIA. And so the fix was in here. And so I went four years. I never had a motions hearing. Uh, any hearings they had were sealed. They kicked the court transcribers out. Um, it was uh, a classic CIA case. And after four years, then Judge Nottingham finally said, well, uh, you know, you can have a, uh, a motions hearing on July 24th of 2003. And um, so... That was the final hearing. He said, if we don't have a hearing, we're going to dismiss the case. So two weeks prior to that, on July 7, 2003, I was cleaning my car's windshield at a Walmart parking lot in Colorado Springs. My wife was shopping. And I never I never saw it. I just heard it. Um, we had hired a tape expert, William Valentine, that had coffee with Clinton and Bush and Reagan all in the White House. He was a CIA tape expert. His job was bugging, debugging the White House. We hired him, and he we had absolute proof that they tampered with tapes, planted with evidence. So the ATF division and DEA and Colorado Springs were all going down when we got this evidence. They were all going to prison, and we had 100% irrefutable evidence. So two weeks before this hearing, um, I was cleaning the windshield on my LTD car in Walmart, and up I heard 
the motor revving and tire squealing, and I was leaning across the hood of my 1990 Crown Victoria LTD, and the impact, uh, it totaled my LTD in the parking lot while it was parked. Um, I have all the police reports and all the stuff. It knocked me back up in the air, and I landed on the top of a roof of another car, rolled over the hood, bounced off the passenger fender of another car, and hit a concrete light pole. And my doctor told me I was very, very lucky to be alive. So two weeks after that, I was at an outpatient physical therapy unit when I uh, got out of the hospital, and I was leaving that walking on a cane. And I, I came around my car, and there's a Colorado Springs police cruiser sitting there with the motor running, and they floored the motor and charged me in the parking lot. Sparks flying when they jumped the curb. It, it swerved sideways, and about four feet away from me, sitting in there in a Colorado Springs police uniform, was none other than the nation's top cop, ATF agent Blake L. Butler. He was one of the guys that was fixing to go to prison, and he shook his finger at me and threatened me and then floored the car and took off. So I was pretty shook up. I'm almost done here. And I went home, and I was watching a movie with my wife and, and kid later that night, and up in my yard pulls up an SUV. And I looked out. I didn't know who it was, and I thought it was the CIA going to kill me. And I didn't want... Um, I didn't want my young son to see his father get shot, so uh, I uh, I went in there. I went down there. I was ready to die. I didn't take a gun. I didn't take anything. And I walked around the window and rolled the window down, and it was Harold Leonard, the guy that offered me the job to bomb the Murrow building for the CIA. And uh, I said, what's up? You know, he said, look, this court thing, he said that we had got orders to kill you if you go talk or talk about any of this. And then he pointed up at the house where my wife and kid were, and he says, we've got orders to kill your family, too. So after that, I called my uh, attorney the next day, Harvey Steinberg. He's the Denver Broncos attorney. He's a great attorney. And I told him, look, I want to change my plea. And we met uh, in the Tenth Circuit with uh, United States Assistant Attorney Greg Goldberg. And uh, he said, pick a charge, any charge, and you're out of here. He said, just plead guilty to something. I don't care what it is. He said, I'm getting a lot of heat on this case. I don't know what's going on. But it's something big, and I don't want anything to do with it. So I pled guilty to dealing firearms without a license. I didn't even know what charge it was. I just pointed to it. It's a ridiculous charge. So I managed to get out, and I made up my mind if I would ever, if I could ever get away from this and get away from them, and the Clintons would get out of office, um, and, and Hillary be out of Secretary of State, then I could tell this story. And so I've come forward now to do that. Now, that's a okay. short version, and I'll ask answer any questions because we only got the rest of the hour. So okay, now well, I, I want to ask you something about this because uh, you've got a story to tell. You've got a book out that chronicles that story called "Choosing the Light." Correct? That, yes, that's your book. All right. It, it's "Choosing the Light: Dark Secrets of the Oklahoma City Bombing." Okay. All right. And, and this is a book that I don't have yet, but I intend to get tonight. All right. That's just so, and, and I want everyone to know that. And um, sight unseen, I would recommend it, just because of what I heard just now and what I know of you, because we do our backgrounds on, I guess, to the extent possible, and, and just having heard you before. Now, the second part of this is, you're right. We 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 only have uh, really about forty minutes left at the top of the hour. However, our third hour guest, Andale, folks. Um, is uh, not going to be able to, to be on with us tonight. So, 
Cody, I'm going to extend the invitation oh, to you. That, oh, that's great, because, yeah, there's okay. so much to all this, like the story of what really happened at Waco. Right. Tim McVeigh was there. See, okay, and, and I just to condense this too much. Yeah, yeah. So, okay. <laughs> all right, so if, you, if you're game... We're just going to take it right through the uh, right through the the uh, second hour. Yeah, right you know, to ten. Right to ten o'clock Eastern. We we only have one break, a three minute break at the top of the next hour. So, knowing that, I'm just going to let you let you let. Well, I'm going to ask you. The reason you're coming forward and forth now is because the Clintons are out of office, right? Yeah. And, okay. And they, they and why else? I mean, um, you saw the permanent state. Or permanent, uh, yeah, permanent state, deep state, still active, but why now? Why coming? Yeah, now? Um, yeah, that's that's a good question. Uh, I think America's at a precipice, and this is a battle between the forces of light and the forces of darkness spiritually. And uh, the Clintons. I mean, I've sat for years. I was a black operator. I spent most of my time wearing black ski masks and double plastic surgeon's gloves with Nomex over them. I was involved, uh, I was hired to bodyguard Barry Sadler down there in 88 when uh, he was assassinated in uh, Guatemala City. I've been in Panama, I've been in, you know, my girlfriend had dinner with uh, Pablo Escobar down in Miami. I've been all over and done all these black cops and seen them from the inside and uh, we kept our mouth shut. You know, we had to maintain operational integrity and keep a minimum of blowback to our principles. But after all this time, and the way they, when they planted me with evidence and all to shut me up, I believe that Bill and Hillary Clinton had direct um, knowledge and, and were directly involved in the bombing of the Murrah building. And um, I know what they were doing in Arkansas because I was there, and I can talk for a long time. The, the Clintons are, in my opinion, the worst criminal man and wife team in the history of the United States. Um, they're much worse than Bonnie and Clyde. And they've hid behind their position in, uh, as governor in Arkansas and as also as president of the United States and then Hillary as a senator in New York and also as secretary of state. Um, I know the true story in Benghazi, uh, one of my associates was there that night and engaged in the firefight. He's not at liberty to, to talk because he signed his uh, standard non-disclosure agreement, but he told me directly right in my ear what really happened there. And so... Uh, th- those two are guilty of so many crimes, um, treason, murder. Uh, it goes on and on. And um, I think that our country um, has to take down this shadow government, and we have to expose it, or we're going to lose the United States forever. Um, Donald Trump has a chance now with all these secret indictments that are coming out to uh, kind of drain the swamp. And um, I'm hoping that my uh, information... Uh, my eyewitness accounts and the things that are in this book. Um, I could not ever publish this book and turn it over to the CIA's uh, PRB. You know, that's the CIA's Publication Review Board. Uh, every agent or case officer and or asset that signs a national security oath, part of that oath is that if they write a book, they they have to have the, the PRD, uh, Public Relations Board, uh, uh, go through it. And then, of course, they chop out all the good stuff. And so I had to do this book opposite, and I, I wrote it, took four years to write, and then um, I had to get out with the interviews first and then get the book publishing later. Most people publish them first, then do the interviews. If I'd have done that, 
uh, this book would never see the light of day, and I probably wouldn't be here right now because there's a lot of real sensitive stuff in it. But anyway, that's why I came forward is because our country um, has been going down the tubes. And the Clintons, even with the Clinton Foundation in Haiti, you know, they had that Dr. Lorch you probably know about up in New York. They just found him stabbed. You yeah. know, I said it was suicide. And he was going to yeah. talk about the $30 million that the Clintons uh, were supposed to give to the people in Haiti. And the, the kids never got it. That's a big CIA station down there in Haiti. They wash all kinds of drug money. Uh, the Clinton's foundation is a whole money laundering scheme for everything, and we talk more about all that later. But yeah, that's the main reason. It's a it's time for us to stand up and stand up for our veterans. And the real reason why the Oklahoma City was bombed has to do with our Gulf War syndrome and our veterans and the massive cover up. There's multiple stages of cover ups here. All right. And so well, we, yeah, and you've got the floor. Uh, I'm interested in in why our government would want to bomb one of our own buildings. Uh, you know, obviously motive being being number one, but you know what, you've got the floor. Um, just take okay. So yeah, we'll we'll skip to that. Um, yeah, to do that, and and for the audience out there, uh, some of them might be younger. Uh, we have to go back in history just a little bit. Um, so bear with me. Back in 1980 uh, and through the 80s, while we were conducting, uh, there were three multiply nested ops in Arkansas: uh, Jade Bridge. Screwworm and Centaur Rose. And um, while all that was going on over here, you know, Saddam Hussein, he was a paid CIA asset in uh, in Iraq. And a lot of people don't know that, but he was. And so they had the Iraq-Iran War. And Iran at that time enjoyed uh, about a 10-to-1 infantry advantage over uh, Iraq. So we were worried that they would overrun Saddam. So the U.S. secretly uh, armed them. Uh, and the Reagan administration, uh, two primary things they armed them with was the Hawkeye uh, 123C uh, cluster bomb. Um, they set up a front company in Argentina. They stole the plans for our stuff, gave it to a guy. Uh, all, the, all this is detailed in the book. I have dates, names, times, bank accounts, everything. It's highly detailed. And um, they had him produce these things for Saddam covertly so the American people wouldn't know. And then they uh, got the zirconium as a key ingredient, which makes the thing work, uh, out of our country. And they faked agricultural reports to getting this stuff, exported it to him. And he sent the things through Africa into Saddam. The other thing they armed him with is the AIM strain of anthrax from Fort Detrick, Maryland. And this is a weaponized grade of anthrax, which has a small uh, uh, protein. Uh, it has a small spore size um, and a altered protein coat, which is weaponized. It makes it more readily absorbable in in a human body. So we had covertly armed him with these two things. And so when Saddam uh, got done with the war in Iran, um, he didn't use all that stuff. And he never got Iran uh, uh, overrun because uh, Secretary of State Donald Rumsfeld at the time, excuse me, Secretary of Defense, Donald Rumsfeld had been giving him satellite intelligence and so forth over there. And um, so anyway, then fast forward and Saddam invades Kuwait. Well, now he turns from a CIA asset to a uh, liability just like me. And they had to demonize him. And the Saudis were putting a lot of pressure on our government because he, they're afraid he'd... Um, our government had to cook up the Desert Storm uh, War, uh, January 91, 
to get Saddam out of Kuwait. We had a problem. Our our standard anthrax shots took a six-month course, one shot per month, to build up autoimmunity to this highly virulent strain. Well, they bypassed all that, and they created a brand-new vaccine, which was one month with one injection. They did that by using an adjunct called squalene. It's, it's a long fatty acid mo- molecule, uh, basically shark oil, and it increases the body's autoimmune response, so the viral... Uh, stuff will adhere and you can develop an immunity and so what happened was they started giving all our guys the shots first lot was Dover Air Force Base and then I've got all the stuff in the book it's got all the details and the dates and times and stuff so all our guys were going over to Iraq getting these shots and the, and the girls too so they were all starting to get sick they bypassed FDA testing they bypassed it all and were using our troops as guinea pigs without their knowledge so the second thing they did, that was the first war, the Gulf War, where they used DU, or depleted uranium munitions. They tested them out at the Dugway Proving Grounds and so forth, and the two main types of ordnance they were using were the 30-millimeter chain gun uh, DUs and the A-10 Warthog. Those are the jets, the tank busters. And the second thing they used was the Sabbat rounds in the M1A1 Abrams tanks, and that's what Mc- Timothy McVeigh was in. Uh, he was a tank commander and one of Brown Star over there, and uh, Nichols was his platoon commander. But anyway, these these uh, new DU weapons had never been used, and so they had some problems associated with them. They have a real high kinetic energy; it's about 5,200 feet per second. And when they were hitting the T-54 uh, tanks that Saddam had got from the Russians, that was his primary tank. Uh, they have 11 ton turrets, and they had a high enough kinetic energy to blow these turrets up like a, a top uh, in the sky. It made a big fireball. And in this fireball, brand new molecules were being formed. Like I said, just like Agent Orange they used in Vietnam, they didn't know what was going to happen later. And so these new compounds were uranium oxide, uranium dioxide, and they only had a particulate size of four microns. Now, our mop gear, our standard gas mask and NBC, nuclear biological chemical gear, only went down to 10 microns. So here, now our troops, on top of getting these nasty vaccines that were causing all kinds of sickness, now they're breathing low-level radioactive particles. And these particles went through the gas mask filters. They were not stopped. And so this stuff started accumulating in our troops. We had approximately 480,000 uh, in theater, and they they uh, accumulate in the thyroid and the reproductive plants. And so when our troops were coming home, let's say you're a male, um, you have all this low-level DU radiation inside of you. And when they came home and they were making love to their spouses, this radiation was being transmitted in their semen into the women, into their ovaries and their reproductive organs. And so when they had children, the children had the radiation in them. And then the grandchildren and the great-grandchildren. Pretty soon, you know, the half-life of depleted uranium-238 is about four and a half million years. The Pentagon had this huge, huge, huge problem never seen before. Who's going to pay all the medical bills of the children, the great-grandchildren, the great-great... You can see how this could go intergenerationally for decades, I mean, for generations. And they had a medical culpability problem 
that could amount to hundreds of billions or even trillions and trillions of dollars in long-term medical costs. So, we're getting to the Murrah building. With all this background, okay, our soldiers were coming home really sick. They called it Gulf War Syndrome, and that was another cover-up. First, they had to cover up the mop gear being defective. Then they had to cover up depleted uranium. Then they had to cover up the vaccines. So, um, anyway, all of this stuff was going on, and our guys were getting sicker and sicker. And about three, four years later, 1994, you know, this is one year before the murder building was blown up, um, there was a Senator Chris Shays, Republican Connecticut, from Connecticut, and he was on an armed services committee in Congress, uh, and he was tasked with determining medical culpability uh, to give our guys some money, just like the Agent Orange settlement with Vietnam. And our guys were getting sicker and sicker. The VA had all these strange cases and all this weird stuff. And, and so um, he tasked the FBI with gathering all the medical records of 480,000 troops. Now, a lot of them had come back. They were still in the Army. Some of them were civilians. Um, it was a big task for the FBI to gather all these records. And they gave them about a year to do it. And then those records were stored in the Alfred P. Murray Federal Building just before it blew up. So when that building went up, all these records were lost, and they couldn't prove a lot of this stuff and a lot of the sicknesses. And so the Pentagon was off the hook for hundreds of billions or even trillions of dollars in long-term intergenerational radiation poisoning, uh, you know, medical costs. And that's one reason. We're going to talk about the second reason here in just a minute. But um, we know that uh, uh, later on, okay, this is in September 19th of 1996, and I have the... Uh, part of the congressional records in the appendix of this book, the Department of Defense of the OD was at Gulf War Syndrome hearings in front of Congress because these guys just kept getting sicker and sicker, just like Agent Orange in Vietnam. The more time that goes by, the worse this stuff gets. And so the DOD admitted at these hearings that over 400,000 Gulf War Syndrome medical records had, quote, disappeared. Okay, and so that's the first main reason why the Murrah building was bombed. And then the second one, of course, had to do with the uh, domestic law enforcement records pertaining to the operations I was in over in uh, Mena, Arkansas, where uh, Bill and Hillary Clinton were there. And at that time, they were running these ops there. Um, Reagan had ordered CI director to covertly arm the Contras, so arms were being sent down there. Um, Barry Seal was one of the pilots. He flew a C-123 um, transport aircraft. He started something called Rich Mountain Aviation. Uh, it was a front for CIA ops to covertly arm, and then they brought drugs back to pay for it. And the height of the op, my higher-ups told me that they were uh, going through approximately $100 million of cocaine a month of the black ops money to run cover, use his position as governor to cover it all up. So he's getting about $10 million a month, and that's what he used to run uh, for president. But we were right in the middle of all that, and we can talk about how it was all done and the stuff. It, it'll take a long time. But that whole op down there, okay, that had been going on for several years. It was a very sloppy op. Um, and at the MENA airport there, they were moving the drugs in the arms, and then we talked about how they washed the money to the BCCI bank and the Caymans and all that stuff later. But to make a long story short, um, 
there had been domestic law enforcement investigations during that time. I mean, it was a big, huge operation. And uh, the ABI, that's the Arkansas Bureau of Investigation, and the um, uh, DEA, uh, IRS, the Russian money, uh, they were all doing parallel investigations. And all those records were stored at the Little Rock FBI field office. And so just prior to uh, the Murrah building blowing up, all those records were magically transferred to the Murrah building. And so as you recall, by that time, July 26 of 1994, that's when the Whitewater investigation began. And then later in August of 1994, the Ken Starr was appointed as the independent uh, uh, prosecutor. Yep. Uh, you know, yeah, because Janet Reno had had appointed Fitch, and Fitch was just a Clinton flunky, you know. And so, anyway, yeah, just jump in. I'm talking too fast, but if you want to, no, I don't please wanna... continue. This is fascinating stuff, and, and um, well, you, can... you know, yeah, you, you no, you just go, go. This is good. Uh, okay, well, I I can go into a whole lot more detail about uh, all the stuff in Arkansas and the pedophile rings and all that kind of stuff later, but. I had some friends that uh, worked on Bill Clinton's wardrobe and stuff before he made his speeches and all this kind of stuff. So we we have firsthand knowledge of, of a lot of this. So anyway, to make a uh, long story short, the Murrah Building bombing. The first reason was all those medical records. Okay, the Pentagon was off the hook for hundreds and hundreds of billions, probably trillions of long-term intergener- intergenerational medical costs. So when Clinton had gone up to uh, Washington, um, they started that Whitewater investigation in 1994. Well, a lot of those records were all stored at the Little Rock field office. And then later on, of course, during the impeachment hearings, that was January 7th through February 12th of 1999. That's when Clinton's impeachment hearings went on. So when the murder building went up in April 19th, 1995, it was very convenient for the Clintons because the uh, Whitewater records, a lot of them were gone. Um, Susan McDougal and James McDougal, they were in that bank in Little Rock uh, in the Whitewater thing, and then James McDougal magically had a heart attack while he was in federal custody just before he was going to go on a book tour about the Clintons and testify to a grand jury. And so there's a whole list in this book of dates, times, names of people that were murdered down there in Arkansas by the Clintons and the CIA to cover these operations up. And so um, we have a great deal of detail. Uh, that's why it's 700 pages. But to make a long story short here, the second reason why they bombed the Murrah Building was because those records were moved over there. Now, there's a, a Tulsa police detective. Um, his name's Craig Roberts. And he got a call from uh, a federal law enforcement officer who wished to remain anonymous who told him, you know, hey, they moved all those, the Whitewater, all that stuff's been moved because Congress was going to subpoena all that stuff. Remember, that was that was um, July 26 of 94 when Whitewater, so they're starting to subpoena all these records. And then a few months later, uh, you know, in April, then the Murrah building goes off. And see, in October, that's too much, John. August, September, October, that's when I was offered the job to bomb that that building. So someone from up top knew that the Whitewater investigation was going on. Three months later, I get the call to go bomb that building. And so the, the reasons for all this get real clear when you start 
digging through this and looking at it. Um, that's why I think the Clintons were directly involved in the operation. Um, I think that they are guilty of treason against the United States of America, and I think that they are the worst liars, uh, probably, of any politicians that we've ever seen. And uh, I think if, they should be punished okay. and put in prison. If I can interject a question here, sure. did you work? Did you work with uh, Victor Thorne at all? Do you know who no. Victor Thorne is? No, sir. Okay. Have I you worked with? Okay, have you worked with any of the other authors pertaining to the uh, uh, MENA, Arkansas, drug running operation? Authors, uh, by who do you mean? Or, or investigative authors. Uh, I'm just trying to think of the the names. Um, my goodness. Um, well, there was one guy that wrote a book called Terry Reed. He was an Air, Air Force guy. Yes, yes. That's what, yes, yes, compromised. No, I, exactly. no I, did not, I did not work with him. Um, uh, Barry Seal. You know, he was shot in February 19th of 1986 after the op was right. over. Now, he was right. the main pilot. And that same day down in Columbia, they had about 25 to 30 uh, hit, hits done. One of them was Pablo Carrera, the number two Medellin cartel guy, and, and uh, Jorge Ochoa, one of the Ochoa brothers. But later on, Barry Seals plane, one of the Beechcrafts that he flew, was a King Air 1982-200. It was found on the Crawford Ranch uh, <laughs> ranch down there with George Bush uh, Jr. Uh, Very interesting. The same serial numbers and everything, yeah. So okay. anyway, um, I did not work directly with Terry Reed or any of those guys. Um, my main thing, if you want to talk about that, we can talk about how we move the arms and all the stuff we did. But um, back to the original thing about the Murrah building. The, the number one reason it was bombed was those Gulf War Syndrome records. And the second one was these, these, uh, all these law enforcement files that were very damning to the Clintons. I mean, there was troves of them. Uh, the Arkansas Bureau of Investigation, the state police, county prosecutors, FBI, DEA, IRS, they were laundering. How do you launder a hundred million dollars a month? Okay. Um, the IRS was involved. There was all kinds of investigations. And then uh, it's all moved to the Murrah building right during the time when Whitewater and all that's, uh, you know, starting to ramp up. Okay, if so, I can just interject a question. Why the Murrah building? Why not an off-site storage facility where, you know, fires happen all the time, bad things happen all the time? Why the Murrah building? Yeah, well, um, I don't know the answer to that question. Um the uh, one guy said, "Well, why didn't they just destroy the, the records over there at the FBI Little Rock Field Office there?" Um, and the reason is there's a cut. Um, there were multiple agencies, state agencies, federal agencies. Uh, you have to have uh, subpoenas and court orders from judges to get even access these records. And so, if you were to steal them out of the building or something, and then burn them in the backyard or whatever, there'd be a massive investigation and a paper trail. And then there'd have to be witnesses that would either have to be coerced or murdered to cover that up. But it's a lot easier just to get an order from, say, the FBI director to move a bunch of records over somewhere to a building. That way it's just simple transfer. And then when the building blows up, oh my gosh, it's, uh, you know, they're all gone. So they could have, uh, done the op in any number of federal buildings. Um, but the one in the Murrow building, I don't know why they picked that op for that. Uh, when they when they offered me the job to to uh, blow that building, I didn't. I, I thought, why, you know, I thought the same thing. Why, you know, why that building? But um, I don't know the answer to that question. Okay, my my, my only only other question, and then I'll uh, I won't interrupt anymore. 
No, go ahead, please, because I get sidetracked. Well, uh, no, I'll sidetrack you like all day long. Uh, Why didn't, when you said no to that offer, why didn't the uh, the individual who made that offer to you just put a bullet in your bullet in your head right there? Because how, how can you? How was it? You know how can that be kept secret? Uh, yeah, you're walking away from a half a mil, and with knowledge, foreknowledge of a really bad domestic op, and it would just seem to me that that you should be dead. Yeah, well, yeah, I mean, given all the uh, subsequent attempts, but why let you go? If I, if I look, I mean, this is just me. If I'm going to be that cold-hearted and say, "Here's a half a million, I want you to blow up a building," and the guy I'm talking to says, "No, that guy's not going anywhere," that's just me. Okay, so why, why do you, you know? I'm just curious. Yeah, because they thought I'd be useful on other ops, and here's what happened. This is all in the book. Um, I left it out because of time's sake, but it's all in the book. After Harold Leonard offered me that job and I told him no, I said, I can't do this anymore. I'm, I'm having bad dreams at night. I'm drinking heavily. I used to sleep in a bulletproof vest and I'd, I'd have twin, uh, Mac 10 silenced machine guns and 45 caliber, one in each hand. Uh, I put trip wires around my house at night. I was getting really paranoid. I'd seen too many people killed like Barry Sadler down there in Guatemala. And uh, so he offered me another job after that. He said, calm down, calm down. Uh, if you don't want that job, we got another one for you. And I said, what is it? And uh, he said, it's a little um, CIA drug op up in uh, Cody, Wyoming, and they're using twin-engine beast crafts to move some coke up there. And then they got Mexicans uh, with fake uh, green cards um, up distributing it, and they're driving it to the big cities like Denver and Salt Lake City, and they're shutting the op down. And standard procedure for the agents or case officers or whoever's doing the op is they pick up and move to the next op or go out of the country. And the lower-level people are usually murdered and gotten rid of. That same thing happened in Arkansas when they were shutting down Centaur Rose. All the lower-level help, just the assets, uh, they're, they're usually, you know, they have accidents and they're suicide and so forth. And that's just one way to maintain operational integrity and minimize future blowback in a black op. And so all that's in the book, too. There's names, date, time. So they offered me a job. He said, we have, uh, we had 25 uh, guys to kill. Um, I've already got two of them. I, I need help with the other 23. And he told me what the pay was and everything. And he goes, I'm getting too old for this. I need help. And he said, we can cowboy him. And that's a black op term, which means, uh, you know, you can just, you don't even have to try to hide anything because he said the county sheriff was on the agency's payroll. And so what the, the sheriff would do would find a body somewhere and then, um, you know, uh, uh, say I was a suicide. And that happened down in Arkansas because Bill Clinton appointed the state medical examiner in Arkansas. So when the bodies were found down there, the state medical examiner, appointed by Clinton, of course, would rule things as suicide. We have one case in that book. His name's Kevin Ives, and he was at the Mena Airport moving drugs. Uh, he's a low-level guy. He went to a bar one night and told everyone, he said, man, they're going to kill me. Uh, I know too much. And later that night, they found his body on a railroad track out there. And uh, he had supposedly taken a butcher knife and sawed his own head off on the railroad track. And they ruled it death by suicide. Okay? And 
right. And, 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 and yeah. Um, now, you go into you go into that story in your book, or or no? Oh yeah, yeah. It's all in there. Okay. Dave right. Thames, his mother uh, tried to file a suit against the Clintons. She was threatened. I've got I've got so much. There's so much to this. But anyway, back to the reason why you're asking me why they didn't kill sure. me right there. Um, uh, he wanted me to do that other job, and I told him, I said, I can't do this stuff anymore. It was crushing my soul. I, 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 I just couldn't do it anymore. And um, on top of that, yeah, I'm that, always... That would suck. I, I'm telling you, that would suck. Uh, you talk about bad jobs to have. Okay, that, that, would, be a, that would really be a sucky job. But oh, ahead. yeah. Yeah. So anyway, uh, that's how they do it, though, in these black ops that are domestic. See, those are illegal ops, but it's not the CIA's fault, like in Arkansas, because Ronald Reagan, the president, ordered the CIA director. If he gives a finding to a CIA director, that's a green light to assassinate someone. It doesn't matter if it's domestic or foreign. You're not held liable legally. And so they were running an op the president had sanctioned. Um, it was illegal because CIA was forbidden to operate domestically in the U.S. at that time. Now, you recall after 2001 and uh, the uh, Twin Towers, uh, they passed that Patriot Act, which is a whole other, oh, my God, don't get me started. But um, the Patriot Act was passed, and in that, in that act, it allowed the CIA to operate domestically for the first time in U.S. history. So um, anyway, on these ops that they pull, they always have cleanup crews and sanitization crews. That's why Bill and Hillary Clinton have a death list of about 140, 150 people. And all these people fixing and testify to the grand jury, they all ended up, you know, suicides and stuff like that. So anyway, uh, to make a long story short, uh, the reason why um, he didn't kill me or terminate me there is because they thought they could use me on some future ops. And I knew that was a patsy op for the uh, Murrah Billy. Because I was ending, uh, I was going to the end of my uh, operational effectiveness. And two days after I turned that job down, one of my CIA handlers, his name was Duke Flaglier. He uh, did two tours in Vietnam. He was with Barry Sadler, and we can tell all that story. And they'd all trained it. At in 1963, they were in the 20th Special Forces Group. They were training before they went to Nam. But um, he was one of my handlers. And he called me two days after I turned the job down to bomb the Murrow building and told me, you need to leave the country. Uh, I've got a house in Belize, give you the keys, and we'll stage you out of there. And uh, I didn't take his offer up. But um, So anyway, the reason why they didn't do that is they thought I could be op- operationally used in some capacity in the future. And also on top of that, you know, I'm a trained black operator. Uh, we're trained in assassination, sabotage, and espionage. I'm highly trained. I did martial arts for over 20 years, went to Japan, studied briefly, and Harold Leonard, I'm always heavily armed like that. I had a couple of hand grenades and uh, I think three pistols on me that time, Um, and I always had my hand, you know, in a coat with my uh, finger on a trigger. In fact, I had a 45 pointed at him through my coat while he was talking to me because we're always worried about getting set up by our own. It's always the guys you trust the most that set you up the worst. So he knew better than to try anything with me because I would have killed him. And if there had been any kind of surveillance or any anyone sees a wire of any kind, it's immediate death sentence when you're in the black ops like that. So that's why they didn't kill me. Uh, very well stated. Thank you for answering that question. I, you know, my apologies. 
feel like I no, apologize no, for even asking No, that. this is about coming out and speaking the truth. There's some things I will never, ever talk about in public, but the Murrah building is certainly one of them because it affects our whole country. It affects the whole shadow government system. And once our people, the American people, there's a lot of good people. We've been misled by this cabal, this shadow government, like the Clintons and all of them. <laughs> yeah, um... <sighs> I'm sorry, I just... No, brother, keep going. Just, again, the floor is yours. I don't care how many side roads you take. You just take... Just talk, because we are listening. Okay, well, we always went by, you know, the creed, admit nothing, deny everything, and make counter-accusations. And so uh, one one of the things we always did in the black ops was make sure there was minimal blowback. You know, there's no photant, that's photographic intelligence, there's no humant, that's human intelligence, uh, no sigant, that's signal intelligence, like what Edward Snowden and the NSA were dealing with, uh, and elant, that's electronic intelligence. So there's also something called scient, that's psychic intelligence. And um, that's a spinoff from the MK Ultra programs. Uh, I was involved in Project Slammer, and we can talk about all that later. Uh, that was a CIA covert assassination program uh, uh, de- dealing with that kind of thing and directed energy weapons like microwaves and stuff like that. That's what I died from back in September 18th and 22nd um, of uh, 1991. And so I can tell you that that whole story is in the book. We, I was the biggest machine gun dealer here in the state of Colorado for... Uh, several years and we had class one class two and class three manufacturing licenses class two is uh, allows you to build silencers suppressors and we uh participate in some of the navy seals contracts and so forth all that's in the book i got pictures date everything's in here but anyway getting back to the murrow building um that operation was planned uh ahead of time the whitewater hearings had begun in july 26 of 94 the, the op was ordered sometime after that or during that because I got the call in, in October of, of 94. Cody, I hate and to it, interrupt you. I hate to interrupt yeah. you. We're, we're at the top of the hour break. Uh, this okay. is the only break uh, and then you got the full hour on the other side. Folks, we're going to be right back with Cody Snodgrass. His book, Choosing the Light. Um, in fact, go to uh, where is it here? Yeah, we got a PDF link that, that they can get it if they need it. Okay, uh, lightonconspiracies.com forward slash Cody. The, the link is in the description box. That's the book to get. This is a guy to listen to. We're going to be right back. Three minute network break. Stay where you're at. Edition of the Hagman Report. Uh, Stan Dale will not be joining us tonight. He's, uh, we got a message where he's under the weather. Uh, Cody Snodgrass is with us, going to stay with us this hour. Uh, his book, Choosing the Light Dark, Light, Dark Secrets of the Oklahoma City Bombing, and much more, uh, of course. And his, that's, his website is light, uh, 
the the book available is available on lightonconspiracies.com. That's lightonconspiracies.com forward slash Cody. The link is in the description box for the show tonight. This is amazing, important information. This is a guy, and you could tell the story is, is his story is weighing heavy on his heart, and uh, this is fantastic. Um, Arkansas politics, Dixie Mafia, Maine, Arkansas, Bush, Clinton, the uh, Gulf War, Manuel Noriega, all of this is all connected, whether you want to believe it or not. And uh, Cody's got the, Cody's got the, uh, he's got the goods. He's got the documentation in his book, and it's uh, choosing the light, dark secrets of the Oklahoma City bombing. And I guarantee you that the first thing I'm going to do, uh, one of the first things I'm going to do is order his book. You're trying it's, to do it during the break. Yeah, actually, I was. Actually, I was. But, um, but having said that, uh, welcome back, Cody, and thank you so much for agreeing to stay the extra unplanned hour. And again, you've got the floor. No interruptions. It's up to you, my brother. Go ahead. Well, thank you, sir. And I'd like to thank everyone out there. Uh, we're going to cover some stuff that may be kind of shocking. Uh, and what I'd like to do right now is go back to the uh, um, Waco compound because ATF agent Blake Butler was there and we have video evidence of him when the uh, you recall when that happened that was back this is all detailed in the book um, February 28th 93 that's when the uh, the Waco fiasco broke off where four ATF agents were shot and six branch divisions were killed um, and what we're going to do is, is tell you from an eyewitness Okay, and about Timothy McVeigh's involvement down there, which most people, there's a lot of this stuff's never been made public, um, except by me. Um, and then we're going to crisscross the Waco into uh, Manuel Noriega and the Panamanian Embassy. So this is stuff that um, most civilians never, ever hear. I was in Panama City, and so we're going to go through this real quick. Um, so when that broke out, February 28th, 93, um, uh, of course it made the news real quick, but I knew a guy named Ron Cole. He was a Branch Davidian. I'm not, but he was. And he was one of McVeigh's best friends. Tim, I mean, uh, excuse me, um, uh, David Koresh. He was David Koresh's uh, best friend, the head of the Branch Davidians. And so just before that compound was hit by the ATF, his mother got sick in Florida, so Ron flew down there. And uh, this is direct eyewitness testimony that, that he told me. Uh, he flew to take care of his mother, and then the very next day, the Waco compound got hit. And uh, he called when it first broke on the news that there was some kind of gunfight going on, and he called David Koresh before the feds got the phone line. And by that time, Koresh had been shot. And he asked him what's going on. And this is what Ron Cole told me that Koresh told him, because it's very different from what the uh, ATF cover story and the federal cover story was. Uh, Koresh told him that uh, they were sitting around in the branch dividing compound one day, and then uh, trucks pulled up, and they had these big uh, cattle trailers behind them. And the branch dividing dogs uh, at the compound ran out to them, and uh, the people in there shot the dogs and then opened up on the the compound and it was the ATF and so Koresh had been shot and uh, Ron was talking to him and then they cut the phone line so Ron left his mother found someone to take care of her he came back flew back 
And by that time, the feds had set up a big perimeter around the compound. And there was a lot of Brass Davidians that were not in the compound when it was surrounded, but they were instead, you know, shopping and doing things in town and stuff. So what they all did was they gathered around the perimeter and they set up camps. And they were sitting there watching what was going on at night. And they were sitting around there, and they had telescopes, binoculars, so forth. What they saw, according to Ron, was at night there were these black helicopters. There were no lights, no markings. And they were circling the Branch Davidian compound. Well, they were seeing these lights come down from them. These, these are all civilians. They didn't know what they were seeing. It was uh, orange and uh, green and red streaks. And they go, what is that? What's going on? You know, I wish we had some night vision. And someone came up out of the darkness and said, I've got some military night vision. And he said, those are machine gun tracers. And they looked through the thing and they could see it all. And they said, how do you know about all this? He said, I just got back from Desert Storm. I was a tank commander over there, and it was Timothy McVeigh. So McVeigh handed my friend, Ron, the uh, night vision, and he said, well, why are they doing it? Why are they shooting that compound up? McVeigh says, that's standard military practice, like Delta Force tactics. What you do is when you have insurgents in a uh, domestic structure and you're surrounding them, what you do is you deny the high ground to the snipers, and you push them down to the lower levels. That way you can collapse the perimeter closer. You see what I'm saying? Yep. yep. And so Makes they sense. were machine gunning. It's called suppressing fire, and they suppress all the operatives have to go down low to get away from the fire, and so they can't shoot as far. They can shoot a lot further on the top of the roof, but when they're down on the lower floors, you can collapse the perimeter. So that was standard practice. So what they were doing was murdering the Branch Davidians night after night, just machine gunning that place all up. And then later on, as you recall, after the so-called standoff, that was ended on April 19th of uh, 1993. That's, by the way, the same date, April 19th, that the Murrow Building, two years later, would blow up. So, and, and, the, and the alleged, uh, the alleged uh, reason for the Murrow Building, right? Right. Well, we're going get, to get there in just a second. Um, the Waco thing ended then. And there were 54 dead and about 21 children dead. When they saw all that, that's one reason McVeigh got mad uh, when he saw all that. Now, Ronald Cole and them later, there's a whole big long story in this book. What happened with the remaining Branch Davidians that were outside because the feds uh, got tanks off of the Fort Hood. That's where my my uh, dad took his um uh, basic training before he went over to Pacific Command at Pearl Harbor and all that. That story's in the book, too. He was at Guadalcanal, Pearl Harbor. But on Fort Hood, uh, the ATF lied to Governor Ann Richardson so they could get a hold of those tanks because that was a violation of the Posse Comitatus Act. But they lied to her and uh, got the tanks, and then they used those tanks to burn the compound down. And uh, So that covered up all their murders from the helicopters. And then Ron Cole and them, when they saw what was really going on, him and some of the Branch Davidians all left, and they came up here to Colorado. And I'd been the biggest machine gun dealer in the state for uh, quite a while. And um, he acquired some illegal MP5 machine guns to protect them and the remaining Branch Davidians. Now, they didn't get them from me. I didn't, I didn't have anything to do with them, although ATF agent Doug Miller, he was our compliance officer out of the Denver branch. Uh, when the Branch Davidian compound went up, they came to my machine gun shop and wanted to go through my ordinance and all of my uh, records to see if I had shipped anything to the Branch Davidians. I, 
had one of my gun distributors, RSR, down in Dallas, so um, I, I had no contact with the Branch Davidians. Um, so Ron Cole and them came up here, and they rented a little place out in the country trying to hide. The feds hit them at night in black, all black, and murdered some more of them. And then Ron Cole uh, went up to uh, Canada, and he had a fake Algerian passport and was going to leave the country. He made one mistake. Uh, he called his girlfriend down in Waco uh, on a cell phone, and then the next uh, morning, the RCMP, that's the Royal Canadian Mountain Police, and the uh, the feds uh, arrested him and extradited him, and they threw him in the pod with me when I was down there with McVeigh. And Ron Cole told me the story straight to my face. He said, that's what really happened at Waco, and nobody knows it. The feds not only shot them all up and then burned the compound down to... Uh, uh, you know, cover it all up. They rigged the trial down there, and then they sent sweet teams around to kill the remaining brass Davidians so there wouldn't be any witnesses and, uh, you know, uh, anyone to talk about the op. I'm I'm one of the only people you'll ever hear this from because it's all been cleaned up, okay? So now, now we're going to go to the Panamanian embassy, Manuel Noriega down there. As you recall, Noriega, he was also a... Uh, a CIA paid asset, just like Saddam Hussein was over in I can, Iraq. I can verify that. I can verify that. That okay. Is, yep. Yeah. Okay. So, so when he was holed up in the embassy there, and they were trying to get him out. Now, this is something real important. I'm gonna. No one's ever heard this, so I'm gonna try to go slow. It's very important. Um, Noriega's in the embassy hold up. Well. They had brought some special teams, and these teams are deal with psychotronic weaponry. Psychotronic, that means psychological manipulation of human beings by electronic means. That means directed sound waves, ELF, UHF, electromagnetic frequencies, microwaves, modulated microwaves, X-rays, and so forth. These are devices that send directed energy to a target to affect a change. And so at the embassy down there in Panama, they had brought some of these devices. Um, they're generally mounted on uh, uh, Jeeps or Humvees or something like that. They have a dome-shaped antenna and a power source. And what they did was they bombed uh, the embassy there with uh, sound waves to make Noriega come out. And they wanted to make sure they captured him and he didn't escape because he knew way too much about the dope and the, and the bushes and all the stuff that was going through the Panama Canal down there. That's a whole other story. But um, anyway, so Noriega was in there and they're hitting him with psychotronics. And they were playing songs. One of the songs they played was Nancy Sinatra, These Boots Are Made For Walking. Now, this is real interesting because... What happens when you use an audio, uh, a sound wave weapon? Most of the sound is outside the audible range of the human ear, like when you blow a dog whistle, you know, the dogs hear it, but we don't. But sometimes the frequencies that they're using to make people want to surrender and get tired and feel sick, um, they, they get into the human range of hearing. And so they have what they call audio overlays. So they play a song or something, and the frequencies are matched to cover up the underlying psychotronic signal. Okay, you with me? 
All right. So they played these boots are made for walking over and over and over down there in Panama. And most of the troops, everybody walking around, you know, they didn't know what was going on. Well, guess what song they played over and over and over at the Branch Davidian compound at night? Come on, Nancy. These these boots are made for walking. And they used the same psychotronic stuff to bomb the Branch Davidians to make them want to surrender and come out as they did down to uh, Noriega at the Panamanian Embassy. And I didn't put all this together until Ron Cole told me to my face. He said, you know, we thought it was weird when we were sharing that night vision with McVeigh and we were watching all of those choppers go around and machine gun those poor people all straight to hell. Um, He said that we kept hearing that song over and over, night after night. They kept just playing it over and over. And all the guys were going, God, we're sick of hearing that. Why are they doing that? Well, none of them had been down in Panama like me. And I'd heard that. I didn't hear it at the Branch Vidian compound because I wasn't there, but I talked to an eyewitness. Then I put it together. They were using psychotronic weaponry. And if you look at the Boston bombing thing, when they when they kicked in all the doors around Boston, uh, you'll see some of those pictures of those things. They're going down the street and they have those dome-shaped kind of black dome weapon things. Those are sound waves. Those are psychotronic weapons. We saw those in Pittsburgh, by the way. Uh, oh. Okay. Uh, they, they were they brought those in for the protests in Pittsburgh. When was that, Joe? It was 2009, I believe, at the G20. Yeah, yeah. So we we've seen those those um, I, I don't know what you call them. the the weapons yeah sound yeah. weapons using high pitch yeah. frequencies right okay now in the book here I also have another story never been told public dealing with uh, uh, SDI weapons Star Wars Defense Initiative weapons um, these were laser beams uh, and my that were used down in Nicaragua. This is an amazing story. One of the guys I uh, knew was a uh, Army Ranger, but CI had pulled him out of his MOS there uh, to use him on covert ops in Nicaragua. And what the standard procedure was was to pull him out uh, for, say, two or three weeks, and then they would fake his DOD files and have a fake, uh, what we call a legend. They would put him in a place at a time like the Ramstein base in Germany, uh, blah, 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 and they give him a medal and say he was doing all this stuff. The whole thing was a fake in the DOD records for the Army Rangers while he was doing black ops for the agency. And the whole story's in there about them eyewitnessing uh, those types of weapons. Now, if you fast forward today, they're using them in California, pure and simple, for the fire. It's pure and simple. I can, I, I, Joe and I were talking about that earlier, uh, John Robertson and I as well. To what end? Yeah, this, why? Yeah, this, why? Why? <laughs> well, Agenda Twenty One, basically, uh, you know, the UN has uh, has that thing. Uh, the first fire that started out there was uh, basically right around the same zones that the Agenda Twenty One had been set up for the new housing. I was born in Santa Monica, California. I've got a lot of friends and stuff out there have been calling me, but they have um, handheld. Uh, they have handheld cell phone footage where they were filming big fires, you know, standing in the street going, wow, look at this. Mm-hmm. And then you could see those the, the bluish-white beams come down real quick. It's like lightning. Wow. And they had, I think they had ground teams starting the fires, and that was the cover for these, these weapons. Now, in the book, I have this whole story. 
and, and you I, were there. Just to be clear, you were there. In, in oh yeah, I've been all through Central America, South America, Peru, Colombia, all that down there. Like right. I said, my girlfriend had dinner with Pablo uh, Escobar himself, so we know. I know so many things. Yeah, but, I had a um, great day with Pablo. I, you know, I was. <laughs> Have a brunch with him, and I just told him I couldn't. I was busy that day. No, I, I, I just, I, I, a little levity never hurts. But, but so, so you, you, I mean, I can tell you the ahead. story down there in Nicaragua about the SDI weapons, or I can tell you about her with Pablo and uh, what all happened with that. And she had to shoot a guy one night, and that's how she met him. But um, I, I've got so many stories. <laughs> wait, 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 wait a second. Wait a second. You can't just gloss over that. She wait a minute. She had to shoot a guy one night, and that's how she met who? Pablo. Yeah. Oh, okay. She was she was working as a as a, a cocktail waitress at a club down in Miami, and the dealer was one of the lower level dealers for the uh, Escobars, and uh, she was selling about seven keys, seven kilos of cocaine a week, and she was just a little piss ass dealer for him. And then um, her boss took her out on a big jet boat one night and showed her a whole load of cocaine that was on it. And then he tried to rape her, and so oh, she shot yeah. him. And yeah. then she drove the uh, the boat back, and she knew she was in over her head, you know. And she went to his her boss's bosses and told him, look, I had to shoot your guy. It's nothing personal, but I, I don't want to be a, get caught up in stealing a, you know, a whole boatload of of coke so I'm t- I brought the boat back like you you know and our boss is here in town and yeah. so he wants to meet you so she went and met him and then uh, was she agency dinner. or is she agency or not no no okay. she was independent right. she's just independent but she's real pretty you know and uh, so anyway uh, he, he she told me that Pablo had a bag of diamonds and he pulled them out at dinner and he says you've brought back you know millions of dollars of coke and we want to offer you a job and we're glad that you shot that guy because he shouldn't have been mixing business with pleasure. That's a no-no when you're operational. But uh, some people do it, and they lose their lives for it. But um, these guys don't have time to mess around with a bunch of stupid stuff. But um, So he had the diamonds, and there were big ones and little ones. And she picked one in the middle. He said, you passed the test. And she said, what are you, what are you talking about? I thought you were giving me this diamond. He goes, no, this whole thing's a test. I don't give a shit about the diamonds. Um if people pick a big diamond, that means they're greedy, and we're going to have to kill them later. If they pick a little diamond, that means they're they're cowards and they're they're too they're too timid, and, and then we're going to have to kill them later because they'll turn snitch. So that was his test on on people moving up the ladder. And so she went off and left the house and a boat and a bunch of stuff down there, and just said, "Look, I don't want to get this deep in this business." I was, you know, just dealing seven keys a week. That's like fifteen pounds of coke a week. That's nothing for that for that situation down there she goes that's all i want i don't want to get any deeper because he just shot a guy you know and and so she left but yeah there there's all kinds of stories like that in this book and generally we don't have time to go through all of them but um so, very, very interesting and, th- and thanks for doing that uh thanks for, for, for sure you know, you know so go ahead and continue as, as again we've got uh uh, we've got the next uh, forty some minutes left, so okay, or no, well, thir- thirty thirty eight minutes left. So go ahead. Yeah. Um, well, I can I can tell a little bit about those SDI weapons. Here's what happened. This guy, I'm not going to use his name, but um, he was an Army Ranger, and the agency came and got him and said we need to uh, 
to take you down there and uh, do some ops. So he was on a black ops team in Nicaragua. This is when uh, Ortega was the, the president, the communists were fighting the Contras, and all these arms were coming in there, and the dope was coming back, so forth. Soviets were operating all over the area, bringing in all kinds of arms and stuff. They were in the dope business, too, just like the CIA was. And so, uh, anyway, their black ops team was out in the jungle, and they came up on a village. This is his story he told me directly to my face. Um, they were on a village, and uh, they came into the village, and there's about 100 people, men, women, children, all dead, everybody dead, cooking pots still going, fire still going, all the people dead, but the animals alive, goats, chickens, pigs, monkeys in the trees, and birds, everything alive. So they immediately put on their NBC gear, that's nuclear, biological, chemical, because as you recall, the Soviets were using that blue rain, you know, that chemical stuff over there in uh, Afghanistan when they were fighting yep. the Mahajadeen. Yep. I had some friends that were arming them with Stinger missiles and, you know, metric tons of hash and all the crap. Uh, that's a whole other story. But anyway, back to Nicaragua. These guys um, saw all this stuff, and it's like they freaked them out. They thought the Soviets had dumped some kind of weird nerve agent that killed the people, not the animals. So they set up camp that night, set a perimeter, and they radioed the stuff in. They had an encrypted sat link, which went back to CI station down there, station chief. And at night, uh, my buddy told me, he says, we've seen all these bluish-white beams, and they were coming down, and when we got to the village, there was this zip, like a grayish ash that was in the tree cam, and they'd never seen nothing like that. And all these guys were seasoned combat vets. They didn't know what these lights were. They'd never seen them. So the next morning, after they called it in, CI Station Chief himself came out there in a Huey 204. They were using those back, back then instead of the Blackhawks like they got now, but he came out in the 204, and uh, he confiscated his own black ops team's cameras and film and said, you guys were never here, and you never saw this. And they said, well, your order, sir. And he said, stay here one more uh, day, uh, conceal uh, you know, the perimeter, set a perimeter, and then leave. Well, my buddy and them saw that stuff again that night, and they had a puff plane back up off one of that... Uh, that air base over in uh, El Salvador and a puff plane a C-130 uh, or C-123 with the miniguns on the side, usually 308s, and that's a standard deal in a jungle where you got tree canopy, and if you have to call in uh, close uh, air support, if they got in a ground air, uh, fight there, then they would just come hose the whole place down, you know, and that was their backup. So they called them, and they asked them, is there any air traffic in the area? Is there any Air Force stuff? What's going on? We're seeing strange things in the sky. And they said, there's no reported traffic. So they left, and uh, years go by, and you know, my buddy's back up here in the States. He's in Colorado Springs. And one of his old op buddies comes back in, and he says, what have you been doing? He says, I'm bored shitless. I'm going to write a book. Uh, this civilian life is boring. And he says, you better not write a book. Uh, that's heavy stuff we were in. Well, the next day, two FBI agents showed up at my buddy's house, and they arrested him. And they threw him in that pot up there uh, with us, and that's where he told me this story. And I said, what do you think those lights were? And he says, I've, we've never seen anything like it. He said, I think it was satellite stuff, or it was way high up, uh, you know, jets using those laser things that Reagan was doing that Star Wars defense. And what he described to me is the exact same thing I saw in the videos uh, from uh, California starting the fires. They were wow. testing that stuff back in the 80s. Okay. That makes sense. And yeah, and I've uh, seen a lot of strange stuff because I, I flew the space shuttle simulator at NASA. It's the one the astronauts trained on.
when I was working on my master's science degree in physics down there, we got a behind-the-scenes tour, tour with clearance. So I've seen a lot of strange lasers and strange things, and um, this all makes perfect sense when you look at it. But now we're going to back. We're, we, we did Noriega. We did uh, Nicaragua with the, the beams and the SDI and the psychotronic weapons. Uh, and then the psychotronic use of covertly uh, weapons there at the uh, Branch Civilian Compound. And so we're going to get back to McVeigh because McVeigh had the night vision and saw what they were doing, machine gunning up the Branch Civilians illegally pre-trial. And um, he had just got back from Desert Storm. Now, a lot of people don't know this. When he was getting his anthrax shots, like we talked about before, and his standard course of injections to go over there to Iraq, um, he was part of a covert test, and it was a Lockheed Martin satellite test uh, for the beast. It's called Battle Engagement Area Simulator Tracker. That's what beast stands for. Now, what this was, um, in the old days, they had dog tags for soldiers, and when there was an explosion, there would be an arm here, leg there, torso there. They had a hard time uh, putting all the parts together, so they went to little microchips in the dog tags, and then finally... Uh, they were using the uh, field configuration in Iraq as a uh, a, a, a real-life test. And so they gave McVeigh an implantable microchip in his buttocks on, on the right side there and did not tell him. What they did was they picked out certain soldiers in different groups and, and gave them these little chips uh, using the cover of their injections without their knowledge. And the protein coats on these chips were poor back then in the early 90s. They were testing them. And they resulted generally in the degradation and breakdown and autoimmune response in the body. And that's exactly what happened to McVeigh. After he got this shot he didn't know about, when he got back, he started having red sores and stuff on his, on his rear. And he had to have that thing removed. And he got really pissed off that the Army had secretly done that. And Lockheed Martin had satellites. And the satellites were tasked over the Iraq War uh, during the January 91 uh, uh, conflict. And it was a real-time test with smoke, oil well fires, oil plumes, sand, um, wind, all the things going on in a real battle where they could monitor individual soldiers through the RFID tracking chips. That way, if a soldier was blown up with some Soviet ordnance like uh, Saddam was using, or those Scud missiles that they were using at the time, um, generally the torso would remain, and maybe the arms and legs would be spread out, but they'd find the, the body by the chip. It was a new way. They were trying to sell it to the Army as a new way to, to uh, take care of wounded and uh, find soldiers after battles and stuff. So um, that was being tested, and he found out about it, got really pissed off. He had it removed. Now, we know this because he wrote letters to his sister Jennifer, and I have copies of those letters in this book in the appendix. Now, a lot of people don't know this, but when Jennifer McVeigh, or well, that's not her name, but he, they were sister and brother, when Jennifer was subpoenaed to the Tenth Circuit Federal Court up here under Judge Richard Mage during the McVeigh trial, um, she was subpoenaed to testify, but the FBI had previously went in and kicked her door in and taken a lot of this, these letters and things because... Uh, they didn't want all this stuff showing up when the Oklahoma City bombing trial came. So uh, I mean, they wrote real, real quick question because Joe and I were uh, were at, but did not speak with uh, McVeigh's father in Lockport, New York. She was she was living in was in upstate New York at the time, right? Who Jennifer? Yeah, I'm not or, sure where she. 
Yeah, okay. I'm not sure where she was. It would but be because... was in upstate New York, around Buffalo, New York, when he right. worked for Cal for Calspan. Yeah, right. And, and there's a, there was a. Uh, I'm going to tell you right now, there was a lot of talk. Joe and I were up there. Um, a lot of talk about his activities, and uh, but but go ahead. Um, interesting crossroads yeah. that you and no, I have. Yeah, we'll get, okay. yeah, let's get back to that circle right here in just a second. But but for this thing right here, I'm getting to the real critical part. First, he'd seen with night vision what really happened at Waco. That kind of pissed him off. Secondly, he'd been implanted with his test microchip that they didn't tell him about. That pissed him off. The third thing that did it was when McVeigh got back from uh, Desert Storm, where he'd been a tank commander, one of Brown Star, confirmed kills. It's all in the DOD records. Um, he applied for special forces, uh, and there was uh, over 100 guys in the class. Well, due to the psych profiles and tests they gave him, CIA covertly approached him and 10 other guys, and they uh, wanted him to uh, bomb buildings, uh, assassinate people, and and it, while using his front as special forces. In other words, CIA wanted him to continue um, using, uh, graduate from special forces. His whole MO would be special forces, but he'd really be doing jobs with CIA, just like my buddy in the Army Rangers when they pulled him out for the CIA. So this is a standard, a standard thing. And so, you know, I had a civilian front as being, um, you know, geophysicist, and that was a good civilian front. But this was going to be using the Army as a front. And so McVeigh told him no, and that's when he left and he quit, quit the Army. He went up to Calspan in Buffalo and was a security guard up there. And that's where we think he probably, after being placed in the standard CIA program of alienation and isolation, that's where they take a combat vet or somebody that saw a lot of action and he's bored to death at some job. And then they approach him and say, hey, you need a job, you need something. Then you get a little excitement and you make a heck of a lot more money than you do as a security guard. But Calspan up there, uh, that place, they were in the Redstone program with the Air Force. That was an electronic ECM, electronic countermeasure measure thing. They had uh, microchips, a lot of uh, telemetry systems, uh, uh, waveguide antennas, and all kinds of real high-powered stuff, and it may happen to be there. Then he shows back up later, you know, in the Ryder truck at the Murrah building as the Patsy. There were two bombs down there that did not explode. There were three of them pre-wired. And I, th- I, I, they did that exactly how I would have done that building. You know, I would have had a uh, a cover because that building, when you blow it up, uh, I mean, it's a civilian building in a country with a lot of infrastructure like America, and you have a lot of uh, civilian newscasts and cameras everywhere. I mean, that building went up. It had 168 people were killed, 680 injured. I mean, it destroyed 86 cars, 324 buildings were damaged over 16-block radius, $652 million in damage, and shattered glass in 258 buildings. So um, that was a big deal. How are you going to cover that up? How are you going to do a black op and bomb something like that to get rid of the Gulf War Syndrome records and the Clinton uh, Whitewater records and, and all of that Arkansas CIA stuff over there? How are you going to do that without a cover? And that, they, they did that exactly how I would have done it. I would have had a civilian cover or an Army ex-military cutout like McVeigh and have the rider truck pull up. Then you have three bombs simultaneously wired already sitting there. And then you detonate them more or less simultaneously. And the whole thing goes up, and then you lay it off on the Patsy. That way they think the rider truck did it, and no one knew about the, the, the three bombs. 
but the two of them didn't go off, so they had another problem. And then later on, there were eyewitnesses that saw uh, guys moving file cabinets and stuff out of there. They pulled the perimeter back. Uh, I mean, I, gosh, there's so much here. There's so much here. Uh, we have yeah. names, dates, times. It just goes on and well, on. Well, uh, I think that this is a good time to people uh, to tell people that what you're leaving out when you're not ta- talking about is contained in your book. Uh, and yeah. I'm correct on that, which I would urge everyone to get, uh, of course. And it's up there on our screen if you're looking at our screen right now. Choosing the Light and the author, of course, that we're speaking with right now, uh, Cody Snodgrass. Uh, okay, so, you, again, go anywhere, everywhere, wherever you want. I mean, it's... it's you're doing you're doing well, my friend, uh, and I'm glad we had this extra time together because this is a story yeah, that could be, you know, it, should be told this thing days. is it's like a uh, onion, and you peel off one layer, and then there's another one, and then you peel that one off. You start looking, and the more you peel, the more there are, until you get some key pieces of intelligence, and then the puzzle just starts falling together. And so that's what I was trying to do writing this book was provide my own personal input, the things I saw eyewitness myself or lived through, and or uh, people like Ron Cole that, uh, you know, were one step away. And so um, we we try to work off of actionable intelligence. People go, what does that mean? Well, actionable intelligence is something that you would take an action on. It's an intelligence uh, that, that has a level of, um, of uh, correctness where you would take action and action means that uh, you risk your life on you know you, a, ideally you want to have yeah you want to have intelligence that's 100 percent accurate but you never have that out in the field you know we were on ops where uh you get some intel on it and then you go into the actual thing in the field and the intel we got was just pure crap and then you walk into a meat grinder and then when you do that and your intel's bad then you have blowback and and you have to cover more stuff up, and it just turns into a big CF, you know. And um, so anyway, okay, so McVeigh, he had reasons why he didn't like the government anymore. One, he'd seen them murdering our own civilians down there. Two, he'd been given a microchip uh, that he didn't like in some covert test for Lockheed Martin, like a guinea pig. Then he got those weird anthrax vaccines, and it was making a lot of people sick. And then three, um, you know, he, uh, well, he had a lot of reasons why he didn't like the government, but um, that's probably the reason why he took that job, uh, to drive the Ryder truck. And there's no way that ammonium nitrate and diesel could uh, affect that kind of damage. There's no way that that could take down that building. The structural integrity of the I-beams and the, the stuff in the center, just like World Trade Center 7, those beams are too big. Uh, you cannot break them without nanothermite uh, or C4. C4 plastic explosive has a detonation rate of approximately 26,000 feet per second. And you generally use the M7 DuPont electric blasting caps. They uh, they uh, take about a 3.2 volt charge to set them off. And that's how I would have done that building, was I would have wired the structure ahead of time uh, using the civilian front of a phone company or phone crew, and you go in there and you plan them, then you have to conceal them. But you have to do it pretty quick, uh, you know, because 
if you take electric blasting caps and you don't shun them in a civilian uh, setting like that where there's a lot of RF signal or radio frequency signal, um, those shunts can get secondary charges and, and go off. So uh, what you'd have to do is keep those charges shunted until right before the Patsy was going to pull up. And what you generally have is another team down the, down the street, like in the OG&E building, the Oklahoma Gas Electric building, or one of the other buildings that was observing. And then when the, uh, the Patsy shows up in the truck, uh, and it gets out of the truck because they had timers and they knew what, how long the timers were, McVeigh set those timers. And he's a getaway car. He had it parked around the corner. Then when that happens and he set those timers, then you wait till right at the last second uh, and 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 detonate the, the the ones in the building. And two of those charges didn't go off. And I think the blasting caps failed, or the charges that they were shunted and and they didn't work at all. But do you understand what I mean when you, when I'm I, talking about yeah, shunning yeah. from RF signal? Exactly. You, you don't yeah, want yeah. you don't want a premature explosion. Yeah, because yeah, somebody can be driving by on a cell phone or one of those weird yeah. radio stations can have a uh, something come out of their tower, yeah. and if if there's a secondary current produced in those wires, and they're not shunted, the caps will blow off. Right, and, and that's why that's why we store our caps uh, in a very special manner here. Uh, right. I'm, I'm, I'm joking, uh, but <laughs> you know, uh, okay. I, I have to ask you this question before it gets t- too far on. Uh, was McVeigh the only one in that truck? Um, all right, I'm going to tell you another something that has never been out in public before. Um, um, the night before the Murrah building blew up, okay, this is uh, the 18th of April, 1995. Now, remember, uh, Kerry James Gagan had told me that three days before the Murrah build up, he took explosives down to three Middle Eastern men, okay? And those three Middle Eastern men took those explosives from him. There was a whole van load of them of C4. Just like I said, that's what you'd use. That's the only thing strong enough to cut the beams. Uh, the other explosives they use, Composition B and and uh, ammonium nitrate, there's no way that'll, that'll take down a building. So C4 has that real sharp crack. So these three guys took those, that van load of uh, explosives down from Gagan. They had the plans for the Murrah building. All right, now, the night before the Murrah building blew up, this is uh, the 19th of April, 95. McVeigh and two guys of Middle Eastern descent showed up in Tulsa, Oklahoma on 21st and Sheridan at the Lady Godiva's Titty Bar or the strip club. Now, the reason I know this is because one of my Cherokee medicine women, I'm part Cherokee and part white in Oklahoma, her daughter, Shannon, her name is Norma Freedom, and her daughter's name Shannon. Shannon was a dancer at that club. And when McVeigh and those two Middle Eastern guys came in the club in Tulsa the night before the Murrah building was bombed, she sat with them at the table. And she said one of the guys, the Middle Eastern guys, was really drunk. And he was blowing his mouth off and talking crazy stuff like, I will be real important. You'll see. You'll see tomorrow and all this kind of stuff. Well, Shannon got spooked, and she left. So some other girls came and sat with him the rest of the night. Well, they 
I didn't think much about it until when the Murrah building went off and they started putting out those John Doe number one and John Doe number two. And then later on, they started blasting McVeigh's picture all over the screen. Shannon saw it. She freaked out. She goes, that's the guy that was here in the club. Well, that didn't fit with the federal cover story. And then the girl that was sitting with McVeigh and these two Middle Eastern guys after Shannon left, they found her dead in her apartment, murdered the next day, which was the same exact day, the Murrah building. I got all the dates and everything in the in the book, the apartment name, everywhere. And so I've got another eyewitness that I've known Shannon since she was little, and she told me straight to my face. I said, don't bullshit me. I said, are you sure that's me? She goes, I was sitting right beside him. I didn't know who he was until I saw his face on the deal. So the whole federal cover story about where McVeigh was and the rider truck and all that, that's all BS. Um, but she didn't want to talk. She, I asked her, can I, can I, uh, get a tape recording? We, we, and she said, I don't want to get involved. I, I don't want anything to do with it. And, um, because her friend just got murdered the very next day after she sat with those two guys in Middle Eastern descent, she was murdered the next day in her apartment. So, and then the bouncer said that the FBI came in there after the bombing and confiscated all the surveillance tapes out of the bar because it could have shown McVeigh with two Middle Eastern men. So to answer your question... Yeah, I've got confirmation on what you just said. Go ahead to answer the question. Go ahead. Okay, yeah. To answer your question, um, when McVeigh pulled up in that rider truck, now I was not there that day. Uh, Remember, as soon... uh, I didn't know anything was going on. I mean, I had turned the job down, and I didn't want anything to do with it, and I didn't get spooked. I went black up here on April 19th when I heard it on the news. Um, I went black. I, I got fake IDs and passports and drop cars and all the standard trade craft stuff. And I, I left out of here and I went down to Oklahoma. But um, when I heard those stories about the Middle Eastern man getting out, I, I, I believe him. I don't think he was alone. I don't think you could um, set the timers operationally. Generally, when you're driving a, a bombing truck like that, um, you have a guy that watches. You have a watcher. Your, your job is to drive, and the other guy's job is to watch for, uh, you know, uh, parallel teams or any kind of uh, potential blowback or anything like that. So I, I'm convinced there was another guy with him, and there were several people who did say they saw that. Um, you know, but I'm just telling you what I know firsthand from uh, Shannon and firsthand from from the things that I would have done had I taken that job to bomb that building. I'm a patriot, okay. and I'll never turn on my country, never. I, and I believe that. And just by virtue of what you're saying, uh, I think anyone would believe that. I, I just have to ask this question. Hussein al-Husseini. Ring a bell? I've heard the name, but I do not have any actual intelligence on it. Okay. I have heard that All name, right. though, uh, bandied around, but I don't know. I don't have any knowledge about that. It, 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 based on the information I have, and, and I can share, I would share this with you in a heartbeat. Uh, Hussein al-Husseini was the, the second person in the rider truck. Oh. And, uh, okay. And, and Hussein al-Husseini had moved from... Uh, that contingent of of Middle Eastern, uh, he, he was Iraqi Special Forces, Republican Guard, he moved there to uh, Braintree, Massachusetts, right outside, right outside of Boston, and that's where I met Joe and I met uh, Hussein Al Husseini and, and the uh, transplants from uh, Oklahoma City. 
and looked in their eyes and let me tell you something you know no soul did you see that dark deep it's like like looking into the eye of a dead fish laying on the boat dock yeah I, I mean there's not yeah yeah and after to get rid of that uh, you know yeah it's, it's just rough but okay and again I don't want to take your time off so continue sir no um yeah, I didn't know that. See, and that's what's good about us all talking like this. Um, I've got a little piece of my puzzle. I by no means know everything. Uh, you, you just told me something I didn't know. Uh, you go to Dave Hodges' show or John B. on Caravan at Midnight or any of these other places, and someone always comes up and goes, hey, well, I know this. Or I had Craig Roberts, that Tulsa uh, police detective. Uh, I used to live in Tulsa there, and he, he just uh, contacted me here and was uh, telling me stuff that uh, I never knew before. Because he had investigative notes when he left the Tulsa Police Department after the Oklahoma City bombing went off. He went down there to investigate. He was there, you know, for the Tulsa Police Department. And later on, the FBI wanted his files and then and told him to shred them. And he, he wouldn't do it because he knew a massive cover-up was going on. And so um, this, this stuff just goes on and on. Uh, one other thing we might cover is uh, on the day of the bombing, April 19, 1995, approximately 9.03 a.m. Central Time, when that went off, there was a uh, Oklahoma City police officer uh, on Northwest 5th Street down there near the Murrah Building. His name was Terry Yeeke, and uh, if I'm saying it, Yeeke, maybe. Uh, he'd Yeeke, been, yeah. Uh, yeah, he'd yeah. been an MP in the uh, military, and then he was an Oklahoma City police officer, and he was down there uh, in his patrol car. I think he was given a ticket or something, and then the bomb went off, and he was one of the first responders, went running down there, and uh, he saved several people that had been cut with glass and were bleeding profusely, um, uh, and he got the Oklahoma City Police Department's Valor Award, meritorious conduct, you know, and all that, and he went in the daycare center, to uh, look for children, and that's where he eyewitnessed uh, the unexploded bomb. And so what a standard op like this, if you're going to destroy records, that's one thing, but another thing you want to do is uh, create a bunch of uh, panic and fear. And a lot of people don't know this, but Bill Clinton, when he first got in office in 92, I think it was, he um, had started this thing. It was the Anti-Effective Death Penalty and Anti-Terrorism Act, and he couldn't get the votes for it in Congress. But right after the Murrah Building went up in 95, suddenly he got the votes. And this thing just tore up our Constitution, Bill of Rights. It was like the Patriot Act after 9-11. It, just, it was really horrible. So that's another reason. It's to cause fear and get a vote in Congress, cause fear to the population, get gun control, uh, and so forth. And so um, this whole thing with Yiki was he had eyewitnessed this stuff and they wanted to cause a psyop. You put a bomb in a daycare, I realize this is, sounds pretty horrible, but from their view, viewpoint, you put a bomb in the daycare and you have more children casualties. That's what you want in an op like that. You want a lot of dead babies uh, so that you can pull on the heartstrings of America, you can put it all over the news. And as you recall, that's just what they did with the press. Uh, you remember that news, we, uh, I think it was Time or Newsweek, had that firefighter carrying the mangled baby out. Oh, Remember yeah. that? Oh, yeah. And yeah. they blasted that, that all yeah. over the news and all the stuff. That was to get the civilian population um, all mad and angry and fearful and, and so forth. And But that uh, bomb didn't explode. 
and the other one didn't explode. And so Yeeke started his own investigation, and he had lots of files. Uh, the Oklahoma City Police Department tried to hush him up, and uh, he wouldn't play ball, so they threatened him. And uh, come to find out later that the reason why the Oklahoma City Police Department was involved in the cover-up of the murder building bombing was because the FBI had infiltrated the Oklahoma City Police Department and had caught several of their cops dealing dope. Not all the cops were dirty, but some of them inside the Oklahoma City Police Department were dealing dope, and the, and the feds had got them on tape and stuff, so they threatened and blackmailed the Oklahoma City Police Department that if you don't uh, play ball with us and help us cover all this stuff up, then we're going to expose you and uh, prosecute a bunch of you. So they played ball. Terry didn't play, and he went off on his red Mustang one day. He was afraid they were going to do something to him, and he went to hide uh, the files. Uh, and he, they had another copy his wife, uh, uh, Tanya, had made, and they put him in a, uh, a bank safety deposit box. Then there was another guy named uh, Chumley, Dr. John Chumley, um, and he had a copy of the files, and he Chumley flew his single-engine plane that day to take the files out. They were nervous, and then Chumley's plane crashed, and then on the same exact day that Chumley's plane crashed, Terry Eakey was found dead, the Oklahoma City police officer. And the fi- his trunk was open, all those files were gone. Yeah, so, I, I'm, I'm aware yeah of you, know, you know all yep. that stuff. Yep, and and that is... And what you said about the FBI infiltrating Oklahoma City uh, Police Department, I would just... Uh, I, would, I, would, I would contend, perhaps, we're seeing a similar case with Vegas, but uh, obviously, the circumstances are different, but nonetheless. Right, right. See, that's the neat part about this is there's parallels. When you when you know from the inside about these shadow government black ops and false flag ops, that the same pattern starts showing up. Kennedy assassination, Oswald, the lone killer, you know, the bombing of the murder building, the 9-11 towers. You start seeing that there's this unseen hand, and there's a similar pattern to an operation and then the cover-up, which follows the operation. And when you start studying them, uh, our, our country has been taken over. I'm a firm believer. I was in Dallas the day Kennedy was shot, November 22nd, 1963. I was a second grader. I can tell you that whole story. I, I stood where Oswald stood at the Texas Book Depository 10 years later, and I'll never, ever, ever believe that anyone could make that shot there. Um, there's, there's just no way. But um, that story's in the book, too, about all of that. But all these patterns are here. Our shadow, shadow government is real. I think it started uh, you know, basically when Kennedy was shot and his brother, Robert, and then Martin Luther King, and, um, uh, and on and on and on. And if we don't do something and stand up and, and stop this and stop criminals like Bill and Hillary Clinton, uh, we have to put them in jail. If our government won't put them in jail because our government's too corrupt, then it's up to we, the people. And if we don't stand up, we are going to lose our country. We will lose our freedoms, and we'll all be microchipped like McVeigh was back in Desert Storm because they were testing that stuff now. Now the stuff they've got now is way better than that. And we will be microchipped in the New World Order and so forth, and that's why I'm, I'm doing what I'm doing now. And, um, and you're doing it very well, if I may say so myself. Your book, uh, "Choosing the Light," uh, is the title of the book, and of course, 
just go to um, the website. I'm sorry, you give out the website. Yeah, it's uh, it's Light on Conspiracies. There it is. Okay. Dot, dot com slash forward slash Cody. Lightonconspiracies.com forward slash Cody. And my buddy, uh, old, he's been doing uh, research for like 30 years. Uh, he was down in Dallas for the last Kennedy uh, thing uh, about, right. uh, about the assassination. So um, there's a lot of information there on that site besides my little book. But what we're trying to do is get everyone together now and, and have a, a, a big wave of truth. It's the only thing truth is, is the only thing that's going to go up against the shadow government. It's too big. It's too deep. It's got tentacles in the drugs business, the arm business, all the heroin uh, and opium coming out of Afghanistan. It all goes back to the China White heroin with uh, General Secord, Richard Secord and Shackley, that CIA agent. They were running yep. all the Air America ops and stuff. Um, yep. th- this thing is bigger and deeper than just the Clintons. But if we can expose it and, and get people used to seeing the patterns of these ops, that way they can't trick us and fool us anymore. Well said. And we, we again, the fingerprints of the deep state, permanent state, shadow government, whatever you want to call it, are on all of these Every op that you mentioned, every incident that you mentioned, um, I, I truly believe that, that we're now coming to the point where there's going to be some level of disclosure. There has to be your comments in the last couple of minutes. We've got uh, Donald Trump in the White House. Do you think that there's a possibility, given the fact that you know he's an outsider, that some of this could come to light? Well, the, when you open the first page of this book, it says the day we see truth and do not speak is the day we begin to die. And Martin Luther King said that. And, tr- and Trump, I think, is kind of like uh, a similar vein uh, of Martin Luther. He's trying to get the truth out. He's trying to make a change in our country. Um, God bless Donald Trump. I voted for him. I don't agree necessarily with everything he says, but who does? I mean, we've got all this division in our country and all of this this stuff, and we need to unify as American people. We need to unify in the light. That's why I named this book Choosing the Light, because we ha- each of us have a choice of what we want to do. It doesn't matter if you're a burger cook or a multi-billion-dollar banker. You, you know what's right down in your heart, and it's time for us Americans to revitalize the soul of our country, and I think Donald Trump is doing that. Um, Donald Trump is trying to, uh, with all these sealed indictments and stuff, clean up things. I hope he's getting a bunch of people to snitch on the Clintons. The problem with the Clintons is if um, they find out someone's going to testify to the grand jury, those people always slip on a banana peel or stab themselves in the heart like the Dr. Lorch up in New York or any number of cases. In the book, I've got all kinds of, of details, the Clinton death list. That's old stuff. Right. But, um yeah, but Donald Trump is trying to do that, so what he has to do is secretly indict people. And if the Clintons don't know that these people are going to testify, then they, they won't order the hits on them. Because believe me, the Clintons have been ordering hits on people. They hire black operators just like me down in Arkansas and other people who won't come forward now and talk like this. Um, and they hire them to kill these people. It's pure and simple. It's It's not only corruption in the, at the highest level, it's murder to cover up the corruption. And if we Americans keep putting up with this, 
and we don't do anything about it, um, then we're going to suffer the consequences of our actions. These people are monsters. They're not like they're like Adolf Hitler in in World War II. My uncle fought at the Battle of Bulge in the Ardan Force. Twenty six hundred. So did mine. Pardon? Oh, did uh, really? Yeah, my uncle was there as well, and, and he was shot. Uh, uh, he, he survived, but he was at the Battle of Bulge, the very same location you just referenced. Right, that's cool. Um, but the the thing is, is Hitler was a monster, and he had to be stopped. You can't talk to him. You can't. He's going to gas six million Jews. How are you going to sit down at lunch and tell the guy, "Oh, you need to stop that"? <laughs> he has to be forced to stop. And these Clintons and all are the same way. If we don't stand up to the shadow government and all of the stuff that they're doing, and they're corrupting the judicial system, I sat in solitary confinement. Days turned into weeks, and weeks turned into months for something I did not do. And I have proof of it. I just couldn't get it into court because they would threaten me with death. That's when the Justice Department is is converted over into a political arm for the establishment, then there is no justice. When policemen break the law, then there isn't any law. It's just mm-hmm. a struggle for survival. And I hope Donald Trump can restore some measure of honor and integrity because all our veterans that suffering in the VA hospitals with the Gulf War Syndrome and Agent Orange and all of these people who fought for our country like your uncle and all the men and good men and women who sacrificed for our country, uh, they're making a mockery out of them by allowing these criminals to run our country and into the dirt and into the ground. Amen. I'm sorry to preach. No, no, no. I'm, I'm glad you did. I'm glad you did because that shows your heart and your intent. And I think I think our audience appreciates that. We're at the end of the show. I cannot believe how oh, quickly I cannot. Good believe. Lord, man, it, this went this went very quick. Cody, will will you come back and visit with us at some future yeah. time? Yes, sir. I'd be I'd be honored. I I have so there's so much more uh, to cover, and I'm, I apologize for I'm talking real fast. I just I get excited and I get emotional, and I apologize for that. Well, you, you paid your dues to to be that way, and and I'll tell you something. I, I'm gonna I'm gonna order your book as soon as this show is over. Uh, delivery by Christmas? Yes? No? Crap no, shoot. it's a PDF file. If you click on it today, we set a site up over in Europe with okay. Ole, and then we have another site here in the United States we're setting up. It has tech problems. We're doing it because they're going to hit the PayPal. You remember Jim Mars's book when he wrote it about Sandy Hook? Right, yep. And yep. He, he set up a PayPal, and they hit it so bad, they defund you. They've been That's censoring. Right. There's a massive censorship thing going on right now. Okay. Well, we'll, we'll uh, we're going to promote the heck out of it, uh, Cody. And I, and I want to thank you so much for your time tonight. Uh, and, and John will be in contact with you. you come back again. And our audience is just, uh, just they, they just love you. So uh, thank you, my friend, for bearing your heart and soul. Yes, sir. Thank you, and God bless America, sir. All right. Folks, that'll do it for us. God bless you. Till tomorrow at 9, my program, and then uh, uh, to Joe and John's, and, of course, flagship.